Namaste and Shalom. <laughs> Namaste and Shalom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a very special guest. Uh, Stephen Siegel is a Jewish person who has followed the Hindu path for many decades. He uh, lives in Baltimore. I met him at the Himalayan Institute retreat uh, over New Year's uh, Day, New Year's uh, weekend, which is an uh, institution founded by Swami Rama and now run by Pandit Trigunait. And he was one of the 200 participants there. And we got to know each other. And I was very uh, intrigued by his background, which where he's so well informed about Hinduism, about Tantra, about Sri Vidya, about Advait. He's been to India. He's had many, many gurus. So, uh, and, and now he's created a hybrid where he's teaching Hindu ideas to Jewish people as a, and the organization is called Prayag. Mm -hmm. Prayag. Uh, a center for meditation or, or uh, Kabbalistic. Yeah, it's both Kabbalistic and traditional uh, Himalayan. Okay. Um, and I'm teaching not so much, you know, Hindu tradition to Jews, but, okay. but meditation tradition from all, from both sources to whoever is interested. Right. <laughs> okay. But you, one of the things that struck me was when you said that uh, you, you, been in this journey for a long time with various Hindu gurus and very fascinated by the different teachings yes. and then you wanted to find out if similar things are also available in Judaism and you found that similar things are available in Judaism mm -hmm. so you wanted to revive those yes yeah so that's a very fascinating um, uh, journey it's been a very interesting journey um, and how did you first meet your first guru which was Ramdas well I studied one weekend with Ram Dass. He's not. I, I didn't study enough with him to call him my guru. How old were my you? My first teacher. How old were you then? I was in college. Um, so this was 1970s. Uh, late 60s. Late 60s. Was, uh, that was the classical era of the 60s. Yes. And Ram Dass was in full swing. Yes, and he came to uh, American University in Washington for a weekend, and I went. Um, but then I just kind of read. Um, you know, books on Tibetan Buddhism. From, uh, uh, Dr. Evans Wentz uh, wrote his lot of lot of books, translated a number of them. Just studied various things until uh, 1974, I guess it was. The Baltimore India Forum had um, a conference where they invited yoga teachers, meditation teachers, to come give a five-minute presentation, um, and I went, and I. Was the only one that, that attracted me was from the Himalayan Institute. Swami Ram. Well, it wasn't him, but okay. it was just a local a yoga, yoga, local yoga teacher who happened to be in that lineage. Um, so that's that's what attracted me. So I started taking yoga lessons with her, and a, less than a year later, she said, "I'm going out to Western Pennsylvania to for a retreat with Swami Rama. You have to come." Um, and I went. And I met him. And that and is this place? Where we? No, are. no, Western, Not, Western Pennsylvania. Western, some other place? Near, near um, Pittsburgh. Okay. It was up in the, a camp or something. That center is still there? The Pittsburgh center is. This was just a location. They, okay. had, they just rented a space to, okay. to have a camp. Anyway, so <coughs> I met him. Um, he told me to make an appointment with his secretary. made an appointment. And the next thing I knew, I was initiated, which I later learned was unusual, that he wouldn't do that usually the first time you meet. Um, and studied with him for about four years. When you say study, how seriously? Um, well, in, at that time, the closest he would come to where I was living was uh, Pittsburgh. So every time he or one of his teachers was doing something in Pittsburgh, 
I would go. You know, not just the local teachers, but if you brought someone in. So and, study, and the study meant uh, listening and practice, some practice? Listen, practice, um, yeah. I mean, there was a, uh, one teacher came in and taught the Yoga Sutras. Swami Rama came and taught many things. Um, and it was a, a very in intimate situation because it was like a, it's a mansion. It's not a huge institution. Um, so everybody kind of slept there. And, so did you recover for him? Or you, you, you lived together? Kind of. Well, yeah, more or less. Yeah. You know, and for, you know, for short periods of time, for a week here, a week there. Um, and then when they bought this location in eastern Pennsylvania, it was closer, and I would come very often. How often? Maybe not quite once a month, but at least once every For many month. years? For four years, yeah. Four years. So, what all of Swami Rama have you read? I mean, you're a prolific... I, I, every time I see you in the, in the, in the coffee <laughs> I, shop, you're reading some one of these tantra books or... Yeah, I, I think I've read just about everything that he published. That must be what, 10, 15 books? Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, my bookshelf, it's, you know, it's, it's wide. So yes. you're, you're extremely well read? In, if you, in, 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 in Swami Rama, yes. In Swami Rama. <laughs> and and, and um, uh, the practices were what? Now, what were the practices? Were they, were they standard meditation? Were they tantra? What were they? In the early days, it was pretty much standard meditation, uh, mantra meditation. And, um, so he gave you a mantra? Yes. That was your initiation. Yeah. Shaktipat. So you had Shaktipat from him. Yeah. Okay. So so that's very good. That's a very you're very uh, one of the few. Uh, I mean, in that in that era, there were quite a few. Yes. But you have you have you're loyal to Swami Rama because you come here. And actually, and then he had he called the first international yoga congress in uh, Chicago. I can't remember what year it was, but a couple of years after that. Um, in the seventies. Yeah. In the seventies. Late. Mid to late 70s. So you're one of the, you're a very good time capsule of the history of the whole movement in the West. Yeah, I mean, he had, Ravi Shankar was there, uh, Swami Satchitananda was there. Um, it was remarkable. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of the panels was um, a rabbi and a priest and a minister talking about where this fits in in the West. Right. And it turns out that one of the people on that, on that panel later on became my teacher. And they for the Jewish side of it, right? Um, and did you meet uh, uh, the Benedictine monk uh, who brought uh, transcendental meditation, uh, uh, Thomas Keating? No, no, yeah, because that was I, another. I, I know his work, but you I, know his work. I didn't meet him. There was an, uh, like there was Swami Rama oriented mm -hmm. surrounding his work movement. Right. Uh, there were other gurus, so there would be Osho related groups of uh, yeah. events mm -hmm. and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi kind of events and mm -hmm. uh, Prabhupada who started this card, his events. So there were, mm -hmm. I would say, six, seven primordial or, or uh, pioneering teachers. Yes. Each of them started huge movements and they would have conferences, they would have uh, thousands of Western students, right. many locations. Mm -hmm. And so you were part of the Rama, Swami Rama part of that. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So uh, this went on. So your close relationship and practice. So when you say you became a follower practitioner, did you practice every day? Yes. In fact, early on, Swami Rama had said to me, if you meditate at four o'clock, I will be with you, wherever you are. Okay. So I started practicing four o'clock in the morning. And I haven't strictly done it continuously for all these years, but for most of the years I've done it, and I'm doing it now. Um, you know, a few breaks here and there, um, and he's with me. And still, so that's that's some of my best times. So you consider Swami Ram to be a guru? 
Yes. You do good. And so when he was when he was in the body, you did all the things one would do to the guru. Touch his feet. No, no, no. In the, in the West, he dis, he discouraged that a lot. He discouraged that. I mean, a lot of the the uh, Indians that came to him would do that, but he he didn't want it. Okay. Um, he, so that that uh, uh, shift from the tradition mm -hmm. was he started it. It's not that the students, the Western students, didn't want to follow. He felt a lot awkward with Western students. He, yeah, he he wanted. But he called the place the you know, Hulain Institute of Yoga Science and Philosophy, uh, and he approached it that way. I mean, they had, they had a scientific lab up here for a number of years where they were doing research on breathing. Um, it, was just, it was a very philosophical and scientific approach, and he discouraged all the, the trappings um, of the guru. Trappings of the guru. So I want to come back. Uh, so till, till, you started in the mid-70s with Swami Rama. Till when? Till 79, 80, and then. Okay, and um, then what happened? One, I was in the habit of, after my morning meditation, when the sun would come up, taking a walk up the hill. And Swami Rama also had a similar habit. He would take walks after sunrise. And one morning he said to me that um, you should go take a look at your roots. I think you'll, you'll make more progress if you examine your roots. And at that point, I was so far from my Jewish roots that I didn't really register what he's talking about. I said, all right, you know, Guru told me to do this, I have to do it, but I have to figure out what it is. Um, and it finally sunk in that, that that might be what he was talking about. So I went and started studying Kabbalah and studying um, some of my Jewish roots and realized that someone who I met at his International Yoga Congress is a teacher that I wanted to study with. Um, who was happened to be in Philadelphia at the time. So I, I started studying with uh, Rabbi Zaman Shachter Shalomi, um, who was kind of the, he created, or one of the creators of uh, the Jewish renewal movement, um, kind of a neo-Hasidic. It was kind of bringing all of this, the, the, the ideas similar to the, the ideas I'd been studying here that are found in Judaism, and kind of uncovering them. But he, he wrote a lot of books also. He was a very, very good teacher. Okay. What was his uh, relationship with, uh, uh, with the Eastern stuff, the Hindu-Buddhist uh, thought? Had he gone to India? Did he have teachers? I don't know if he's ever had specific Indian teachers, um, but he also was a, uh, a Sufi. Okay. <laughs> he, he, is, he, was, he was fluent in... Uh, in Arabic, and, and in fact, one time on a trip to Israel, he, he went out and, and sought out some Sufis and, and said, I want to, I want to do zikr with you. Um, and you know, said, this, this Jewish rabbi wants to do They didn't believe it, so they started asking him questions. And sure enough, he, you know, it's, his beliefs were, were so meshed with theirs that they were willing to just to practice with him. Um, so in his, in his uh, biography, if you were to have to, if there, if, I hope there's such a thing, but in his biography, uh, uh, what what he was he what was his story in terms of being born Jewish and wanting to at the end create a, a Jewish renewal movement mm -hmm. using Sufism Hinduism and so on uh, bringing it all together into Judaism. Mm -hmm. So what was the uh, what was his story like? Who were the who all influenced him? How Jewish was he? Was he alienated? He, his he was uh, one of born in Europe, one of the um, Hasidic sects. Okay, so he was. He was very, very, very traditional, um, and 
met the uh, the uh, Chabad rabbi, the, the Lubavitcher rabbi before the last one, um, I've forgotten his name now, um, and studied with him. Um, and in fact, he was studying together with the one who later became the Lubavitcher rabbi. Um, and he was appointed, he and several others, to go out and bring this, you know, Orthodox Hasidic, Hasidic Judaism to the college campuses to teach students, to bring them back. Um, Which year was he trying to bring them back? I don't know. Okay. It, was, it was early. Um, probably the 60s, my guess. But I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, and basically along the way, the way he used to say it is, while he was teaching them, he was, they were teaching him. And he right. was learning what they needed, what was what was what would get draw them in, what what it was that would work for them. And he realized that they really wanted the the spiritual side, not just the not just the learning. Um, so he started developing that. So this is a very common story I hear from Catholic Catholics, Protestants. It's same thing. That there yes. was a that the move to the east mm -hmm. in the sixties. Uh, uh, meant that uh, the, the orthodoxy felt that there was some gap, some lack, some deficiency which uh, they were not able to supply and the Easterners were able to supply some experiential stuff because mm -hmm. the Judeo-Christianity had become very heady, very intellectual, right. book, book oriented, mm -hmm. uh, mainstream is still like that. Yep. Uh, and and uh, so these pioneering Jewish teachers, Catholic teachers, Protestant teachers decided to go to campuses where the whole uh, New Age movement was going wild and in order to understand what do these people want, why are so many American kids, white Americans going to Hindu gurus, mm -hmm. what is lacking in our tradition that right. we, we should offer. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that this uh, person, uh, Zalman uh, Schachter, Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-T-E-R, was a pioneer in, in that process yes, of, absolutely. of bringing, so his origin was Hasidic Jew, which is very, very orthodox. Yeah. Um, and the more orthodox, the more it was considered obsolete or people in the mainstream in the 60s not interested in the 1860s. So, so by going to the students, uh, learning what, why they are excited, he could, he could at least formulate the needs. Yes, and he's, he, he created a, a movement that, um, I mean, his own practice was still strictly orthodox. The only exception he made was having men and women together instead of separate. When the, the Orthodox, they're all separate. Um, but other than that, his practice was still the very traditional Orthodox. But he would bring in, for example, the heart of the of Jewish um, prayer um, is what's called the Amida, the silent prayer. Well, the silent prayer before it was written down as here's the words you have to say silently was a meditation. I mean, this, this, this stuff that's written down was some rabbis from the year 200 or so um, saying, well, this is what we'll put in here so that people don't forget what to do. Um, but it was really a meditation. So he encouraged people to meditate during that time. So that meditation it means he introduced words into it. It was silent, it was silent but with words. Well, the, that was what was introduced years ago. <clears throat> okay. became, and that be, then the words became more important than the meditation. Right. So that he was taking us back, the renewal, go back to the meditation where the words are a guideline and not which something you're supposed to just read. Um, so that was, a, that was one of the ideas that he brought in. He, a lot of very creative ideas. He also brought in a lot of philosophical and, and psychological types of things. For example, he would encourage 
um, people to go off and do dyads and share. Um, in fact, I met my wife at one of his retreats. And our first interaction was sitting for 10, 15 minutes out in the field, asking each other, what is it that keeps you from being who you really are? And then just using you know, top of the mind, re replying to that. So we joked that we had never met, or we'd never, we had never dated, but we knew each other better than most people who had dated for years um, after this one retreat. So basically, he was an innovator, yes, out of the box, mm -hmm. Jewish person, mm -hmm. teacher, uh, bringing in things from various traditions in order to revive Judaism, and that's the well, new new that's that's called the new revi the revival uh, renewal renewal. And, and he, yeah, I guess he was bringing some things in from other traditions, but rather than that, he was looking at other traditions, seeing what they had, and then finding the same thing in the Jewish religion tradition to bring it out and renew it rather than bring something else in a lot of a lot of the jewish meditation teachers nowadays are bringing in vipassana bringing in different types of meditation um but he was not doing that he was he was saying okay this is what works there we must have something like that or else we wouldn't have lasted this long so what you're saying is he he was at the stage where he wanted to bring in those uh, Eastern traditions where he felt they must have existed already in Judaism. And he'd find them. Rather than bringing in from outside, he'd say, okay, here's what, what's the equivalent that, that was here that, that people forgot about. So later on, other Jewish teachers uh, started uh, bringing uh, 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 things that were uh, things that were not necessarily in Judaism, but could be added. Yes, and that's that's what's happening a lot now, but it's also, there's also a lot of very authentic, uh, traditional Jewish meditation being taught. So what are those? some of those things that you feel that others are bringing in that are new? Um, Vipassana? Vipassana, this mindfulness. Um, although, again, there are comparable or, or equivalent things in the Jewish tradition. They're just not as obvious. But it's, so it's easier to take something that's already there and well-formed and use it. What else would you say? Vipassana is one, TM. Um, no, some some mantra though. Yeah, so a little bit okay. of mantra meditation using using Hebrew phrases for the mantras. Um, right. And in fact, there's a a whole movement. In fact, my wife is involved in of Jewish chanting now, okay. using using phrases from the from the liturgy uh, to chant instead of just reading. What about goddess? That's a big one. <laughs> Actually, that's a very interesting one. Because, so, because I keep hearing that you know, Jews say, well, some, there's a dichotomy between the Jew rabbis I talk to, those who say it's something new, it's, it's, you're allowed, some is masculine religion, some say you are, it's neutral, some say it was already there, some say it can be added, so we're happy to add them to that. <laughs> some saying that it was already there in the Kabbalah, it was yes. already there, uh, and some say, no, that's fraud because this Kabbalah is not as old. So tell me what you are thought of this. I mean, I, within I, the Jew, Jewish circle, oh, there's I mean, a lot of lot of different opinions. I many think. different opinions on bringing in the Hindu goddess mm -hmm. into Judaism uh, from the side that says it was already there. We lost it. We Hindus are thank you Hindus, you bring us back. Uh, uh, to those who are saying, well, it wasn't there, but it's a, it's it's a, it's compatible with the goddess. There's nothing preventing us. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there, but we can always add. We're progressive, smart people. To those who are saying, well, it wasn't meant to be there, and and so on. What what where do you stand? I stand with it's always been there. Okay. It just was very well hidden. Why was um, it hidden? 
I think it was probably hidden early, early on because all around them were idolatry things where, where they were making sacrifices to female goddesses. There were, you know, to male gods. To, and, and I think early on they wanted to distinguish themselves and, and say, no, no, there's only one, you know, not, not, not a multitude. Um, and the only way they could come up with one was to have either man or, or woman. They didn't under, They didn't come up with the concept. They didn't. didn't couldn't hold on to the concept of the, the common people. Uh, whereas I think the intellectuals and the, and the mystics all along from the very beginning held the held the concept of of the of two in one. And in fact, in Kabbalah, that there's a very very tr you know, strong tradition um, talking about Shekhinah, which is the imminent present aspect of God, which is also considered the feminine, as opposed to the, the way out there, the, you know, the other... But in the Holy Spirit in Christianity, I know I'm switching. Yeah. Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit is masculine. Yes. Not feminine. So, and the Holy Spirit is... is masculine. Is, yeah, but Holy Spirit is the one, isn't that the, the one that's out? Um, yeah, but in the Trinity, mm -hmm. the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, Catholics often like to say the Holy Spirit is Shakti and saying ah, it's Goddess. Okay. That's, that's their that's pathway. That's their pathway to seek uh -huh. in the old Goddess tradition. It's already there. Mm -hmm. But then the Orthodox uh, Jesuits will tell you that the Holy Spirit is masculine. So, so, so you cannot <laughs> because it's always referred to as He, mm -hmm. and He enters from outside. God's grace he brought, brings in the Holy Spirit. Right, which, is, not some, it's which not, is the difference. Which is it's not something innate. Mm -hmm. So in Judaism, is it innate? Yes. In fact, it, well, again, it depends on what branch of Judaism we're talking about. If okay. we're talking about the mystics or the Kabbalists in Judaism, there's this concept of one has to do something, has to raise up energy, which is very similar to some of the practices in, in uh, Tantra. And that then draws down. So what's raising up, what's, what's here, is the feminine, and what's drawing down is the masculine. Right. And that's that's very I mean, that's, that's classic in Kabbalah. Um, and in fact, one of the things that, that struck me when I was, I was studying this um, was reading some of the Psalms, and it it almost seems like it's describing exactly that process. So. Uh, we'll come back. We'll, I want to come back to the metaphysics, uh, but I want to also go to your journey. So <laughs> we're interweaving as yeah. something very in interesting milestone happens. I want to pause and talk philosophy, then go back to <laughs> sure. rewind. I mean, this is very fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are in the uh, around 1980s time frame now that you mm -hmm. are you've discovered a Jewish teacher right. uh, who is interested in the revival of Judaism, mm -hmm. uh, who is going to college campuses and studying this New Age movement, wanting to understand how Judaism can supply. Mm -hmm. Similar similar movements uh, started by Catholics and Protestants right. also. And in parallel to that, it was also starting another movement called the Havara movement, okay. where instead of going to the big synagogue or the temple. People would just meet together in their homes, smaller groups. What was it? How do you spell it? Uh, that's from Hebrew, so it's 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 very different ways. If I were to do a search, I, I were going to spell it. I'd spell it H A V U R A H. H A V U R A H. Uh, but it could also be called spelled with the C H. Okay. Chavara instead of Havara. Or C H A V U R A H. Mm -hmm. Movement. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in fact, he came. Reb Zaman came down to Baltimore two summers in a row to help us start a Havara in Baltimore. So, the retreats. so this is not, not, not synagogues, 
just meeting each other's homes. Chavaraz is a is a variation of the word for chaver, friend. So it's a group of chavaraz is a group of friends meeting together for spiritual purposes. So it's a, a satsang. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or a, a, yeah, like prayer meetings. So one of the outcomes of the 60s, the reaction, the response from the Judeo-Christian was starting the satsangs, Christian satsangs, Jewish satsangs. Yeah. yeah. Now, did Jews, in order to rescue their children back, like the Christians, started something called deprogramming movements. You heard about the word deprogramming. I've heard of it. Deprogramming was uh, they would go to uh, those who run away to Osho mm -hmm. or who run away to Iskan. Mm -hmm. uh, rich parents would hire a deprogrammer, pay a lot of money and say, now you go get my son back or you go get my daughter back and give me this much money. And they'll go catch them somehow and mm -hmm. remove the brain, what they consider was sure. brainwashing. They felt that the gurus had brainwashed them and wanted to bring them back. Did Jews start that also? I'm not aware of it. Okay. They they did have folks that would try to, in an organized way, teach them. To but I don't back. think that you know the, the not Kabbalah, but you know here's here's Judaism, which you're, here's not what you weren't learning, and why why you went there. So did, but not as far as I know, trying to yeah. to deprogram per se. So did any Jewish people think that you've been brainwashed? Uh, what, what was the, during the 70s when you were doing all this, mm -hmm. what was the reaction of parents, friends, family, rabbis that you gone and done all this? Curious. But not, not a sense of being brainwashed. I mean, I guess my immediate, my family probably thought it was a little strange coming up to the Himalayan Institute all the time. Um, but at, even during then, I would still, you know, be with the family for holidays and, and you know, do the various rituals for the various holidays. Um, so they, they were happy as long as that was going on. And you, you were sort of not in the face Hindu. With the, right, no. And you were just sort of doing this your own thing. They knew you were going to this guru or that guru and mm -hmm. maybe you had some symbols, maybe you turned vegetarian. Did you turn vegetarian? I was a vegetarian for about seven or eight years, yeah. So they found some quirks mm -hmm. or what they consider to be strange things. Right, but again, not, not the outer trappings, not the symbolism. Um, because that was not what Swami Rama was teaching in those right. days. Right. It was just, it was just, he was teaching it. This is a science of, you know, of how to how to grow. Right. You know? Right. Okay. So now in the eighties, uh, when you had this Jewish teacher in the revival movement, mm -hmm. what happened to your relationship with Swami Rama? Did you back off or have it in parallel? Um, I stopped coming here. I still kept maintaining my meditation practice, so I had my relationship with Swami Rama at four o'clock in the morning, um, but not a face-to-face. -face, uh, although I, I came probably once or twice every couple of years or so um, when there was something particular that I wanted to come to. Um, and shortly after that was when he left the country and went to India. Um, so I know it was no longer a strong attraction for me to come here. Um, and I guess a little later, I, I got interested, I'm trying to think what, I, what it was like. Oh, I came to one seminar here um, about the Cape of the Heart meditation, at which uh, Pandaji and Swami Veda were both, both co-leading. Um, when was that? I can't, I'd have to go back and look at it. I've got a, a CV that I wrote about, my spiritual CV. I'd have to go back and look at it, I don't remember. I would love to see your spiritual CV. Would you send it to me? Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's sure. very fascinating, you have a good story, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I came to that and it just 
felt very much like home. So at that point, I started um, looking for what Swami Veda was doing. And I started going every year, every other year. So, 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 so basically, just, just so you, uh, people can understand this, you had an intense thing with Swami Rama for a long time. Mm -hmm. You met the Jewish rabbi who's doing the Jewish renewal. So you kind of less into Swami Rama, except meditation, you're not in touch with him. You go with the Jewish rabbi, you do that. But then there's an event in this organization, mm -hmm. the Himalayan Institute, where you meet another Swami called Swami Veda. Right, it was one of, one of, his, one of Swami Rama's disciples. Disciples. So then what happens? Um, I started going, he had, he had a center in Minneapolis. I started going out there in the, once, once a year in the summer. He would have silent retreats in five or ten days. So I started going to those and got into you know, silence and really enjoying that. And then, then they also would have a, sometimes a week-long teaching around that, around Guru Purnima. So I started getting back into it a bit uh, with him um, at that point. But again, not as often as I had been coming here, but you know, once or twice a year. Um, and he encouraged me to, a number of years, well, much later, 2010, he encouraged me to come to India for a 40-day silence retreat um, on my own. I just come to the ashram and do my own silence. Um, so I did that. In Rishikesh? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but, but in the meantime, the Havara, our Havara is, is very active. I'm still very active in it. I'm kind of people look to me as the one of the, the you know, movers and shakers. In fact, I, I get mail every now and then addressed to Rabbi for the East Bank Havara, which Havara means satsang. That's it. Basically, yeah, yeah. But you know, we meet now. We meet every week. Uh, we so, have, so, so, this has been your uh, summary of your uh, experiences with the Hindu gurus. Mm -hmm. uh, now, now, when now, let's talk about your own. You started. Your, you became the leader of a satsang. At some point, you run. You run the Parayag Center. So, what is the story of that? When did you? Because you know, you went. One could say you went. You went Hindu with Swami Ram, then the Jewish with the revival movement, then back to Hindu with the Swami Veda. Mm -hmm. So you are going and learning and bringing things to, back and forth, uh, at, and and you are rediscovering the Jewish mm -hmm. uh, traditions by going closely studying the Hindu tradition, saying, okay, now I learned this thing about the goddess, let me see where it is found, that sort of a thing. Well, so you're, 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 you're really an archaeologist. You're a, yes. You are an archaeologist. Yes. Uh, you are an archaeologist in the sense that, uh, so I, I'm writing this word, I'm just saying <laughs> Jewish, I'm, I'm going to write this word and I'm going to coin this word, that you're a Jewish <laughs> archaeologist. Uh, can, we, can we come up with a uh, word we both like, which is, you know, like the physical archaeologist looks at physical stuff and he says, ah, this thing about 2000 years old was such and such. There is an intellectual archaeologist mm -hmm. uh, who says, uh, this knowledge, I, I think if you connect the dots a certain way, maybe these guys haven't connected for a long time. I, I'm going to show you how to connect these dots because I found something which fits in these dots. So this is the beginning of a sentence, this is the end of a sentence, of a paragraph. I've, I've, the middle has been lost and I'm going to find it. And I, and I found this in... So the, the Hindu repository is an archaeological repository where Jewish elements can be found. So uh, this is another kind of rela inter interesting relationship. So, uh, do you have a term for that? What would be a Jewish, a Jewish archaeologist using Hindu material? I don't have a term for that. I have a good, interesting story though. Okay, tell me, tell me. So, for years, Swami Veda was saying, 
Start a center in Baltimore. Start a center in Baltimore. Enough of this learning. Teach. In fact, when I when I took the um, the yoga training course, the, uh, the the teachers training. Which year was that? Is there a year for that? Because that would be a milestone. Two thousand seven or eight. So I don't know exactly. So about a decade ago. Yeah, about that. Um, so it was sitting. So Swami Veda was sitting there, and and his one of his. Uh, primary teachers um, was giving out certificates when you complete this. So he, the assistant calls my name and I go up and Swami Veda instead of you know giving a nice little blessing and he says, and you, you should be up here doing this. You should already be teaching. You shouldn't be just learning how to teach. You know you know all you need to know. Don't, you don't, you know. He was going to be a hard time. And he was constantly telling me, you've got to be teaching. You can't, you can't just take all this stuff in, you've got to teach it. Um, so eventually, he finally convinced me, <laughs> um, and when I got back from my, in fact, when I was, did my 40 days of silence, um, for three days after that, uh, two other folks and I hired a car and drove, or, 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 and a driver, and went from Rishikesh up toward the Himalayas for a one-day trip. Um, and on the way up, we, so we went as far as uh, Chandrabandi, um, and went there and did some puja. And then on the way back, stopped at Dev Priyag. And I got down to the, to the water at Dev Priyag at the point, um, where this remarkable, you know, mountains flowing, bright aqua glacier melts comes from one side, and the big, slow-moving, you know, not really slow-moving, but the big, wide, sort of brownish look comes from, and it's if they meet at this point. And I got to that point, and I said, this is where I live my life, where all this exciting stuff from the East and, and this big, very ancient thing from the West are coming together. So that's where I got the name for my, for my group in Prayag. So Prayag, for you, is the... Uh, it's a confluence of the two holy streams. One is this fast, exciting, new Eastern stuff coming into the West. Right. And this calm, very old, relaxed, big, huge thing is the Judaic, Jewish tradition. Yeah. And the, and, and together the they Jewish tradition powerful. is the Jewish tradition is absorbing, assimilating the Eastern tradition, or or something. Well, no, else. actually, it's, it's creating something new. Because from that point on, they they no longer have two different names. <laughs> the name is now the Ganja. So if that is true, then then you would not be teaching to your people to be better Jews. It would not be a Jewish renewal. That's right. It would be a Siegelism. <laughs> uh, it, it would be I, I'm bringing you something new, Stephen Siegelism. I'm I'm inventing the Steve Stephen Siegel religion, which which brought, borrows from the stream, uh, the big religion called Judaism, and another very exciting stream from Hinduism, and joining the two, I'm creating Siegelism. Is that what you're doing, or are you saying that I'm I'm bringing Jewish Judaism back to its original glory, using this stream to revive it because this stream has got some excitement, mm -hmm. and this big huge river. Uh, of Judaism used to have it, but it lost its way 100 miles back, you know, <laughs> somewhere they built a dam or something, they lost all that exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's depleted, it's become very slow and calm and gentle and it's not exciting. So I'm bringing the excitement back, but actually I'm reviving what was already there. Which of the two do you, how do you present it to your students? Okay, what I presented is not neither of those. Okay. Because I don't, I don't teach either religion. Okay. I teach um, technology. Okay. Techniques, um, how one works with oneself, um, 
In fact, for example, I taught, I spent a lot of time in my last, last two years teaching yamas and niyamas. Right. Um, and, you know, at first students were kind of balking at that. It's like, when are we going to get into the, you know, the other good stuff? And I said, this is the foundation. If you, if you get this really good, everything else will just flow. Then I got trained in the Jewish tradition, something called Musar. And Musar is yamas and niyamas technique. It's, it's the techniques to improve and change. Um, and, and it's a technology. Um, so I taught that and led groups with that. But I'm not teaching either the Hindu or the Jewish. I'm teaching, here's a technique. This happens to come from this tradition. This happens to come from that tradition. And if you use both of those, it'll make it that progress in that area of your life even faster and stronger. Right. right. Um, likewise, no, the, so this interesting story. So I've been doing this practice with Swami, from Swami Rama for many years. Right. And this is, you know, we're talking maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago at most, 15 years probably, 15 or 18 years. And one morning, I could not maintain my concentration. Because and, and, it was a fairly involved, long practice, a lot of mantras. And my mind just wouldn't do it. And I was like, what is this all of a sudden? For, you know, since, since the 70s, I've been doing this fairly regularly and have never had a problem. You know, it's like if I, if I didn't do it, it was because I didn't bother. Right. So I, I decided to just try uh, just a simple mindfulness, just to right. see what's going on in my head. Right. And what I found was snatches of the 23rd Psalm. Not, you know, not a, a, the whole thing or anything, just little bits and pieces here and there. It's like, I recognize this from somewhere. It's the 23rd Psalm. So I then spent probably close to a year learning and researching the 23rd Psalm and applying what I had learned in Kabbalah to that. So in Kabbalah, there's a tradition, whenever you read a text, you have to read it at four different levels. You know, there's the surface level, just the story of the words. Then there's something that in Hebrew is called remez, hints. There are hints in the story of something else going on under the surface. And then there's another one called drash, which is story, but it's a story <laughs> underneath the story. And then the, the, third, the fourth one is called sod, which is translated as secret or hidden. But one of my other teachers, who I've studied with not for a long time, but took a few courses with, um, who was a, a Kabbalist, well-known Kabbalist from Israel, said, no, no, you don't read that as secret. Read it as taste. He says, because it's not like you're not allowed or you're hiding it. It's that it's like chocolate. You can't describe it to someone, they have to experience it. So that, that fourth level is, is the experiential level of what's going on in the story. So I, I applied that, and I started finding things very interesting in the 23rd Psalm that, uh, it takes up too much background to get into detail, but very much like chakras um, in, in the Eastern tradition, there's this tree of life in the Kabbalistic tradition that also can be overlaid onto the body. And it turns out that either the, these, these sphera, that they're called centers of the Kabbalah, line up with chakras, or a balance point between two different of these sphera line up with the chakra. So what I, dis what I thought I discovered was that the 23rd Psalm was giving you as a guided meditation, moving energy up the chakras, 
and then welcoming energy back down. And I, I showed this work to this, this, this well-known uh, Kabbalist teacher from... And this is the 23rd Psalm from the Bible? Yes, from the Bible. So I showed this to this, this rabbi, this, this, this actually Rosh Yeshiva, the head of a, a Kabbalistic Yeshiva from Israel. And I said, somebody, all these years, those songs have been around, somebody else must have seen something like this in there. I can't be the first one to see this. And he looked at it and he says, I've never read anything like that. But it looks good. It makes sense. Keep working on it. So that's kind of inspired me and encouraged me to say, okay, so there's a lot of this stuff in there that nobody was looking for. That's why they didn't find it. It's not that it's hidden. It's just that they weren't, they've been trying. You know, so my experience was that, that after spending a fair amount of time here studying you know, traditions and Tantra and, and very, all the terminology, when I went back and read Kabbalah, it suddenly made sense. You seem to be from my, my uh, mindset or my guess is that you seem to be somebody who is diving into the tradition of uh, Tantra and then going back and rediscovering, finding new things in the Kabbalah every single time. Yes. And so you maybe have you may have had twenty iterations in your life. I mean, you are on the twenty-first iteration each time. Mm -hmm. Each time you go back to the Kabbalah with a new you dive into the Tantra, mm -hmm. you take more things with you yeah. that you can f look for. It tells you where to look, what to look for, and then you find these things. Yeah. Yes, it's re it's remarkable. I was when I was taking the uh, first course of Living Tantra uh, here. Um, 98, 99, I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, I happened to also at the same time be reading a book by a Hasidic rabbi from the, I think he died in the 40s. In fact, I know he did, he died in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and I was reading this and it's like, wait, he's describing exactly what we're learning, just using different terminology. Um, it was just remarkable. I showed, in fact, I showed it to someone, one of, the, one of my friends who was studied with me here, I can't remember his name either, but he was from Washington, D.C. and was also a, very, a Sanskrit scholar and very, very knowledgeable. And I showed him this. I said, you've got to read this paragraph. And he read it and he said, that is the clearest explanation of that particular aspect of Tantra I've ever seen. Who wrote this? And he said, Rabbi Shapira? <laughs> you know, um, and it, it's, it's there. It's just, you know, it's just most people don't know about it. Right, right, right. So, uh, um, is there a... <clears throat> for for, for uh, a historian, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like I fit into that role, you know, history of sure. religious interactions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, is there a summary that you could ha you have done or could do of uh, Hindu tantra, Shakti, path, you know, these kind of uh, the goddess tradition, mm -hmm. which is what this is, the and the equivalent in Judaism that you feel ought to be acknowledged, but many, most mainstream Jews would not acknowledge. Because, you know, when they talk about, this is where what fits into my Hindu-Jewish thing also. Mm -hmm. When they talk, when average Jew talks about what, what's, why we and Hindus may have things in common, there's things like family values, mm -hmm. and, you know, truth is one, and we all love peace, and it's very superficial things. Mm -hmm. And you are drilling deeper than that, and you're finding many, many things. And you're, each time you take a dive into the Tantra tradition, you take some interesting things that you feel intuitively probably uh, probably belong in Judaism and you go look for places where, where, where it belongs. Mm -hmm. So if somebody said, what are, what are such things that people ought to know about? 
is there a list like that? Like for instance, this 23rd Psalm in the Bible, mm -hmm. you feel is uh, is kind of a guided meditation to raise Kundalini, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, on, on one level, yes. One level. Because like I said, there's four levels. Yes. Um, so on one so level, the, it's clearly so, just the Psalm. <coughs> so in that same way, is there a, is there a, is there a direct, uh, is there a kind of a glossary of such ideas that you think uh, it would be an interesting? It's a very interesting idea. Um, it's an interesting. It's the sort of thing I do. Uh -huh. I love to do this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that it exists per se anywhere, but different Kabbalists at different times have looked at different texts and seen interesting things. One Jewish guy who was into ISKCON for a long time moved back to uh, into Judaism and wrote something similar about the principal ideas of Vaishnavism he could find in Judaism. Mm -hmm. That was his journey. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just wondering if there's a way to organize all these. Because once you've organized them, then you can, t you, then you know, you are in between uh, the tradition, uh, the Hindu tradition mm -hmm. on the one side, uh, but also with the, the real confrontation comes with the mainstream Judaism tradition. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is really what you're up against, because they don't buy any of this. Well, but then, <clears throat> When I, I lead meditations at a, at a synagogue occasionally, and what I do is find them, you know, the, the specific things that are in the, the Jewish tradition. For example, it's very interesting in the Old Testament, the Torah. There are like thirteen chapters, a huge section of it. It's describing the design and construction of the Mishkan, the, the temporary moving tabernacle when they're traveling in the desert. You stop and think about it, two chapters of the Ten Commandments, the whole Sinai experience, two chapters. The whole rest of the Torah, there's nothing else that uses that much type, except for this, this construction of this, this temporary temple. Because it's only, it's, it's, its purpose is, you know, originally, only until they get to the Holy Land when they'll build a temple. So the question for the Kabbalists is, why? Why would they? Why would the Bible do this? There's got to be something more there. Well, it's a lot like a Shri Yantra. It's telling you the, the structure of the universe and how to get to that holy of holies. Okay, so let, let me write down. Let me write down. So the first was the twenty-third. What is this one called? Thirteen chapters. I don't know exactly where it's in um, in Exodus, and it's all about the construction, the design and construction of the the tabernacle. The temporary tabernacle that they that they would they would travel with them. They would, it was it was collapsible. They would they would fold it, you know, close it up, carry it with them to the next place. First thing they do when they set up camp is set up this tabernacle, the place where God dwells. Okay. But its intention was <coughs> to only rest until they got to the Holy Land. So you think this is Sri, Sri Chakra? Not that it's necessarily the Sri Chakra, but it's very similar <coughs> concept. It's, it's a it's a way to go from the outer, if you think about, they set up a wall. And outside of that wall is all of the stuff, all the busyness of the world. You go inside that wall, and suddenly you're in a different space. And then within that, there's a place for the sacrifices, there's a place for washing water, and then you go into another, inside of another, actually not really a wall, it's, a, it's cloth, several layers of cloth, like a tent. And it's even quieter. 
and only the priests go into this inner, inner area. And in there, there are certain symbols. There's light, there's a, a table with um, incense, there's a table with, uh, with some bread, some <coughs> offerings. And then inside of that is yet another enclosed space that is so holy that only the high priest goes there once a year. No one, no one goes in there. And in fact, when he goes in there, they tie a string around his foot. So in case, he can't, in case it's overwhelming, they can pull him back out again because they can't go in and get him. <laughs> okay, so what is this whole thing? It's describing <clears throat> physical body going to mental. It's, it's just it's the five sheets. Going from physical body to mental or to, to prana, to energy, excitement and energy and, and the, all of that, the sacrifices and stuff, into the next level, which is the mind and, the, and emotions, into the next level, which is the, you know, the, the blissful level, and eventually the holy of holy is the cells, the self. Well, that's the same process as Sri Yantra. You're, you're going in to the, to the center. So it's, it's not a Sri Yantra, but it serves the same purpose. Right. So I have a meditation that I do, where you just sit down and you, you start with the, you know, the outside world and, and you gradually let go of the various things that are distracting you so you can go to the next level and let go of the things that are there that are distracting to go to the next level. Um, and it's very Jewish because it's tied directly into something from Torah. And yet it's very similar to what we could do here. It, has, it didn't come from here, but having experienced what I experienced here, I could see it, whereas otherwise I would have never have seen it. Right. 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 So, <clears throat> so clearly, um, you are uh, an important uh, gateway for Tantra ideas into Jewish revival, in a sense. Are there five other people like you or 500 other people like you doing this sort of thing? Because there must be quite a few. There are quite a few. Um, probably not 500, but probably maybe 50 or 100. And where do they many, meet? And many of them are much more trained than I am. The rabbis um, you know, they've, they've, have studied the Jewish side of it on a much deeper level. I mean, or, well... Who are some of the leaders in this, in this area of... Uh, particularly Tantra or Indian uh, techniques, philosophical, scientific techniques, yeah. reviving Judaism. Who are some of the leaders? Um, actually, uh, Rabbi Cooper, I'm trying to think of his first name. Um, David Cooper. Okay. Um, David and Shoshana Cooper, they do a silence retreat once a year. C-O-O-P-E-R? Yep. <clears throat> he's written a number of books. One of them is God is a Verb, is one of his books. Which is you know, clearly you know, saying that it's not something out there, it's the, it's the, it's the being, it's the doing. Um, I'm trying to think who some of the others are. I could send you probably, I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Then there were also a number who, who were bringing out Kabbalah and bringing out this without reaching out to other traditions, just looking, looking from their own tradition without having, as far as I know, any, any training outside of the Jewish tradition. Um, there's some doing that also. Um, and again, I, I have to, I'm, I'm very bad with memory names, so I have to give you, I have to get back to you with that, I guess. So what I'm saying is that uh, 
there's a whole pipeline. There's a whole pipeline. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there are people who are close to the Hindu tradition, close to the Tantra tradition, like yourself, who are directly involved. Mm -hmm. And then who supplies, whose output is a is a feeding feeding into the renewal movement, Jewish renew, revival renewal movement. Then there are these other teachers mm -hmm. who are not directly looking at the Tantra tradition. They're not in contact with the source, but they're in contact with people like you. They read your works. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of, in a sense, secondhand, but it's sort of like a little bit processed. Mm -hmm. It has been processed a little bit by you. And then it supplies other people who, who can clearly say, I have no contact with the Eastern tradition. I'm working only with the Jewish revival tradition, but I'm looking for ideas and I'm looking for ideas from another Jewish person. Mm -hmm. So we are within the Jewish group, we are doing this journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and then his output will go to somebody even further away who will say that, look, I, I'm basically looking only internal to the Jewish tradition mm -hmm. and I'm meditating and I'm in collaboration with very other deep, serious Jewish meditators. So I think there's a pipeline like that, which Probably, is yeah. <clears throat> which is interesting. So is there a a, a, a convention, a gathering, some something like a yoga, uh, you know, a, a big yoga, uh, you know, conference? Is there such a Jewish thing of Kabbalah people where they talk like this? Where is it safe for you to talk like this uh, openly with a lot of Jewish people present? Certainly not the Orthodox Jewish. Right. Okay. So. <clears throat> The Jewish renewal movement has developed something that they call Aleph, which is the first Hebrew letter, but A-L-A-P-H. Okay. Um, and they actually now have their own seminary. They're, they're ordaining rabbis. Um, so that the Jewish renewal movement is, is, becoming, is, is getting almost to be a, another branch, but not quite. They don't want to be a branch, but, but it's, it's beginning to look like one. Um, so that's one. They have a every, I think it's every year, no, I think it's every other year. They have a large gathering that they call the Kala, um, which I think is Hebrew for gathering. I'm not sure exactly what it means. Um, so when they say Aleph, what does it mean to them? They have developed this term Aleph to mean what? It means, it's, uh, it's so the first Aleph, letter of the it's, uh, Aleph is the first letter of the Jewish alphabet. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of, mean? there's a whole lot of, it, it probably is an acronym that stands for something, but I don't know offhand what it is. Um, but symbolically, Aleph is the one. So, so it's a very mystical letter. It's, so it's it symbolizes their movement? It symbolizes their movement? Well, it's, it's the name that they've given their movement, yeah. Um, or their organization. I mean, the movement is still Jewish renewal, but the organization is, is named Aleph. Okay. Then the other thing that... that Actually, very interesting, um, strange teachings. So Aleph to... is sort of like the Jewish Om. Sort of, yeah. It has no sound. Aleph, Aleph has no sound. It's, a, it's a, a letter that needs a vowel, or else you don't have any sound. Um, so that, that's one. That's kind of the closer to the um, traditional Jewish... Then there's another one, the, the National Havarah Committee, which is basically just an organization of all these independent little groups around the world. Okay, National Havarah Committee. H, H with a C possibility. I think they use H. H, okay, H-A-B. U-R-A-H. U-R-A-H. Committee. Committee, okay. Okay, and all they are is just a, a place where these different little small Havarahs can can be in touch with each other, but and they have a once a year. Okay. Um, 
what do they call it? Hang on. Conference? Yeah, but there's a name for it. Um, hmm. Institute, Summer Institute. The National Harbor Academy and Summer Institute. Um, where, where, where is it and how long is it? It's a week long um, and they have it, they have been having it up in um, New Hampshire. They're looking for a different location now, I believe, I'm not sure. How many people go? Last year there were several hundred, um, two or three hundred. Is it for a consumer or yeah. is it for a producer like you? You're a producer it's of knowledge. It's both. But, and because, the, because it's a Havara movement, the consumer and the, and the producer overlap very much. So a lot of the members of Havara, like me, <clears throat> might teach a class. What about a Hindu collaborator? Would he be welcome there if I want to look for a co-author, a research collaborator to look into all this Hindu Jewish stuff? Uh, I'm a historian of religions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I look at how new religions are formed, mm -hmm. confluence, prayag, and all that new kind of stuff is formed. Uh, and uh, particularly where Hinduism is playing a role in these things. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm very interested, I, I'm writing many, many books at any time. I'm writing some books with Christianity and so on. I'm also writing one with Islam, the whole, you know, the Islamization of Hinduism and the Hinduization of Islam. Mm -hmm. In India, it's happening a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of Indian Muslims, for example, just to divert for a second, are doing things under Hindu influence, which the uh, uh, people in Saudi Arabia are kind of saying this is all heretic stuff. You know, right. I'm sure you're considered a heretic also by, by some, some sure. by, by some Jewish people. So in these uh, uh, confluences, very interesting things happening, and I'm always looking for partners and collaborators mm -hmm. to work with. Mm -hmm. So is that a place to go? You probably would would meet some potential interesting people there. People who are open-minded. Yes. And uh, if somebody it's, says it's a, it's a again, Havara is totally decentralized. So there is everything from very orthodox <coughs> folks who happen to be part of a Havara movement to folks like me. But there are some people who give talks. Oh yeah. There's, so suppose a Hindu wanted to give a talk on the history of this last 40, 50 years, and where does Hinduism fit in? Does it fit in the Hindu-Jewish coalition that I'm, I founded? So would they say, no, 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 you, you're not one of us? I don't know. It would be worth contacting them. And, I mean, the, the process is you, you contact and offer a course. You give a little short write-up of what you want to teach. And they either Is say it yes courses or, no. or talks or workshops or what? There can be, there can be short workshops, there can be week-long courses. Uh, they have both. So I, mean, I was considering doing a, a workshop. I don't think because I'm, one I'm thing, one thing I would like to do is collaborate with uh, a, a person on the Jewish side mm -hmm. and do something together, like a workshop or something, mm -hmm. uh, where pe we can bring in two sides and you know maybe right. also provoke mm -hmm. and provoke and see where it needs to go from here into the future. That would probably be re well received by some of the folks there, by a, a, maybe a bunch of them. Um, but the, you see, the problem is the thing is this, and I'm just explaining from the Christian side mm -hmm. what I've found with the Christians, and I don't know as much about the Jewish side. I'm trying to learn. <coughs> the intermediaries mm -hmm. who are Christians who've done a whole lot of digestion and assimilation of Hinduism, and are presenting it to other Christians, 
are very jealous of a person like me. It's almost threatened, like, you know, wow, then this guy, this guy is the source. My, my value added is not there anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I am uniquely qualified in front of these guys, in front of my mm -hmm. audience when he's not around, uh, because I can get away with anything. And I, I, and I can be the pioneer. I, I step, I step in and start, I'm the, I'm the Indiana Jones who went mm -hmm. to the uh, Temple of Doom and found all this <laughs> weird stuff, and I, I cleaned it up for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm the, I'm the frontiersman who's gone to the frontier and brought mm -hmm. all this back. Whereas if this guy, he's the Native American, he's this red Indian who's come with all his feathers and he's come in there. Now you know, now why, why do they need me? So they, uh, it's difficult for me to say, okay, listen, we can work together on this. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know, I, I'll keep the authenticity and the integrity, and I'll raise some counterpoints, which is always very healthy sure. in any discovery process. Very few of the people who are these intermediaries are actually uh, open to such a collaboration because most of them will say, I'll quietly, privately learn from whatever I have to, and then I go to this organization and present it as something I've pioneered. Uh, is what do you think the Jews will feel like in, in this respect? Well, I think people are people. Okay. So, so, but I think at the the Havara movement is more likely to be receptive, okay, than than other places. Good, because because it's not. I mean, one of the main things about it is it's, it's not a lot of ego driven. That you know, the, somebody who teaches this year will be a student next year. Somebody who's done a workshop, you may be sitting next to them. So they're class. experimenting. Absolutely. It's a, it's a crucible for yes. investigation and yeah. experimentation. I, this past and summer I took a course on um, making Jewish, Jewish uh, talismans, um, um, you know, amulets. Um, you know, and it, it looked at the history of it and where was, you know, the context, but then it was like we were sitting there making these, you know, things. Yeah. Um, See, the thing is that you have a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and small mm -hmm. players and hobbyists who are they don't have an ego, mm -hmm. but then you have giant bestseller people, yeah. people who, whose books are in. You, know, you go to sure. Barnes and Noble or you go to some place and they are big top ten mm -hmm. spiritual but not religious all those kind of guys. Mm -hmm. They are very they they have a they have an agenda. I mean they yeah. know they are look, doing it like any corporate multinational, mm -hmm. looking for market share and looking for brand and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. those guys are tough not to crack. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I mean, in the Jewish side, uh, there must be such people. I'm sure there are. Um, my experience with folks, I mean, you know, I, I've not spent a lot of time, but at least you know, I've done a workshop or so over with quite a few of those these folks, and I don't see that in them. So you feel they're generally open-minded. Yeah. I mean, the, the ones that I've dealt with, the ones so, in the Havara movement, the ones in Jewish renewal movement. So I find that often the producers of this hybrid knowledge are open-minded, mm -hmm. but then their consumers are specifically Jewish mm -hmm. or specifically Christian. That and it's, it's, the, it's, that, the, yeah. it's the consumer pulling them in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Like Deepak Chopra mm -hmm. was a Maharishi follower. Now, not discuss nothing relevant to Judaism, but his relationship with Hinduism and with Christianity has moved not because of his private thing, because in his personal life he's still very much Vedic, you know, mm -hmm. but the market has moved in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's what his uh, book agent tells him would be the best next right. bestseller. Sure. What he ought to say on Oprah and what he shouldn't say, mm -hmm. you know, how he should dress and how, what exact. Mm -hmm. So you look at the early Deepak Chopra when he was in the Maharishi movement, mm -hmm. uh, he was as Vedic and Hindu as Maharishi, and then you look at the early 
once he's launched his satellite and his rocket is still <laughs> stage one rocket, it's still quite a lot of it that way. Then as he moves on and on, he sheds these rockets and the new rockets take over. And he becomes different. So, so, uh, and I don't know if it is, uh, it, this is shift from within or without. Because the shift from without is what's the marketplace telling you, your, what is the rankings, what is your, the next guy who wants to interview on TV, what are the talking points they're looking for, who's the audience, what is the feedback, letters to the person, what, what are the people asking for. So I think it's often not the ego of the person, yeah. but their pliability and malleability and flexibility to dealing with what the market wants. You think that's... That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Jews are smart business people. They're very smart. <laughs> I uh, There's one, Katz, K-A-T-Z. Mm -hmm. Uh, Norman Katz or Harman Katz, some guy like that. Uh, he's a rabbi who did a PhD in Hinduism and he wrote some books. And I asked him about all this, you know, that you are in a Vedic conference, you say this, in a Jewish conference, you say that, and I saw it some, some of his books also. He says, you know, because my mom always taught me to go where the market is. So I'm a Jewish guy, we know where the money is. So it's not like purity. Right. I mean, you, it's not like, oh, we're all pure people. Right. After all, they are, as you said, human beings are human beings. Sure. So uh, there is such a thing as fame, prestige, fortune, being sure. a pioneer. So that must be, I'm sure that must be driving. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's there. Yeah. And like I said, the Havra movement is probably the least likely place to Least likely, that. yeah. Because they're all experimental. So this is fascinating. Uh, so what I wanted to uh, discuss, what I wrote are a couple of things here. One is uh, 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 this... Uh, um, this, uh, what do you think of, what do you think is happening to Jewish identity? Okay, mm -hmm. by identity I mean uh, the importance, it, it would be one thing if people who are of Jewish origin said, I don't care about identities, I don't care whether I call it Judaism or whatever. I'm learning it for the science and for the practice and the te technology and the experience and I'm learning it from all sides. Mm -hmm. Then I would say, okay, that is absolutely in their case. There's no ego, collective ego of being Jewish. But if at the end of the day, that person is very interested in looking for these things in Kabbalah and teaching their kids, son and daughter, saying, okay, you know, be proud Jew. Now we are. We know why we we're Jews. See, we lasted all this long for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we were not chosen for nothing. We got all this. We lost it somewhere on the way. So, how important do you think to your clientele is identity? It's quite variable. Um, to a lot of people, the, not so much the religion, but the identity, the culture, the, the history is important. Um, but what, what reason do they give in today's world of, you know, so much movement and so much? Why is it important now? If they really are convinced that this, whether it is Sri Chakra, whether it is the 13 chapters in the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, whether it is Psalm 23, whether it is Kundalini, it's all basically mm -hmm. science. It's got nothing to do with you know, these old identities. And these identities were political formation we don't need. If they truly believe in that, then why would it matter to them that you know I've got a point of Jewish? I don't know that they really <coughs> believe in that, though. I, I, there's a... There's a tribe, you're, you're there's a tribe that, sense in Judaism. You're, you're saying that you're not sure that they truly believe in the scientific value of that. Or that, that that's all there is to it. Okay, that, yeah. Because, that, I mean, Judaism... There's a know, tribal... You there's, a tri there's a tribal sense to it. It's, it's, you know, it's a religion on top of, but it's, it's you know, the tribe of Abraham. 
You know, it's it's the it's the it's it's family. It's it's extended family. Now that's the that's the nature of it that I think goes even deeper than the religion. Good point. So the yeah, because uh, while Christianity can say it's not a tribal thing, it's more uh, mm -hmm. a kind of an ideology. Yeah. you know that everybody can have. Mm -hmm. The Jewish is very tribal oriented. So uh, what keeps that tribe so solidly intact? that they will put a religion to stay together as a tribe. Mm -hmm. As you said, they've worn the clothes of a religion. Mm -hmm. Now they may put on the clothes of a, a old science and all that based on Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. So there may be many layers of clothing, one on top of the other. Mm -hmm. To each time the clothes sort of fall apart or get compromised or are in trouble, get challenged at least, then you know, just go look for another pair of clothes put on top. But inside, deep inside is this tribal identity that wants to preserve itself, mm -hmm. if, if that is a valid yeah, I, what is the reason for that? I mean, you're probably mm -hmm. one of the most enlightened persons. You've gone through so many traditions. You've gone deconstructed, deconstructed. The Sri Chakra also gets you deconstructed. Mm -hmm. uh, so deconstructing all of that, uh, you had these experiences. Mm -hmm. So what, when you, when from those experiences, you see your fellow Jewish people, some of them your students, and they're really driven by this need for finding the Jewish greatness and no matter where we may, maybe if we lost it we were already had it we find out some sweetness we jantra we find out that they, this we already had what is that driving force very good question i don't know it's a it's a um a shared identity a shared consciousness um a history it's it's very difficult to say it's a, so here's a Opening, mm -hmm. uh, reincarnation would do it, with, do away with that. Because if somebody believed in reincarnation, then you know, in my previous life, I may have been a Chinese, I may have been an African. Before that, I may have been an elephant. Mm -hmm. Before that, I was a woman. Before that, I was a white person. Before that, I was a Jew. <laughs> I've been through all of those. So my past as Rajiv's previous lives has nothing to do with my biological ancestry. Yeah. So I don't I, ultimately who I am and where I have been is not a particular biological thing. So would a true, honest, uh, uh, you know, meditation as, uh, uh, you know, reincarnated person, if you were to create that meditation, if you were to take a Hindu meditation, which goes into past lives as many, many beings, even Buddhists also have that, mm -hmm. and find something in the Kabbalah that says that, you know, we've been uh, all this, I was once upon a time, I was a slave, once upon a time, I was a pharaoh, uh, mm -hmm. once upon a time, I was this and that. If you were to get the Jews into that, would it deconstruct the tribal identity? Very interesting, because... It would be very if, risky. If, well, because if you go back into the Kabbalistic idea of reincarnation, they talk about a quote Jewish soul. Okay. So so that so that you don't lose that identity ah, from life to life. See, <laughs> they, they have their way around it. So this is this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting thing I have learned, because I must say I must thank you for that because I have all these conversations with so many of my Jewish friends, mm -hmm. and they never told me that the reincarnation Jewish soul. They say, oh reincarnation, we also have it. Oh, we also have it, but they don't tell me the whole truth mm -hmm. that this is reincarnation, not in the Hindu sense, because in the Hindu sense and Buddhist sense, I've been an ant. Yeah. I have been a tiger. I have been all these. Right. I've been the predator and I've been the prey. Mm -hmm. So I am experiencing, I have the repository of all kinds of experiences in me. Mm -hmm. So my idea of globalization mm -hmm. and oneness is that I see that in everybody. Sure. I see that in the past, in his life, my life, we were back once upon a time, we, may, we were brothers, we were mm -hmm. whatever we were. So I'm open to all of that. 
But if there is this idea that there is this capital Jewish soul of which all the Jews are members and the reincarnation is kind of an internal recycling. Sort of. And I mean, there's, I'm, I'm not an expert on this aspect of it, but the little bit that I've learned is like uh, this, this being is made up of a lot of, it's a sort of a composite soul. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it, it sort of recombines in different ways. But somehow in there, there is a Jewish aspect of it. So the, my, my strategy to deconstruct the tribal identity using reincarnation won't work. People will say, ups, don't make me an elephant or don't make me this uh, the guy, Pharaoh I cannot be. Mm -hmm. See, we are told that you, you, may have, you may have in yeah. a past life, you may have been the foreign invader and oppressor who came here and yeah. killed all the people and now you're reincarnated to sort of do the other way around. Mm -hmm. so we're taught all that. Yeah, I know. This is part of the Hindu greatness, I think, that you can, you can transcend yes. beyond your thing. Yeah. And again, I'm not an expert on that field. There may be an aspect of that in Jewish Kabbalah that I'm not aware of also. But the little bit that I've learned um, talks about this, you know, that, that in fact, there's, there's some talk about, you know, certain ways that the Jewish soul can do certain things and other, all the other souls do something, you know, act in some other way. So, so the real boundary to cross for this whole satsang movement would be to get past those things. Yeah. Because as long as you're within those things, you're still uh, upgrading Judaism. Mm -hmm. while, while you're saying, okay, you know, we're bringing all the conference together and all that. You are really, the big river, which is Judaism, is really wanting to assimilate the little stream called Hinduism. <laughs> because while you say with something new will emerge, but that something new is, is going to be, okay, we are still the same river, we're still that soul, we got reincarnated. It's the, re it's the Jewish reincarnation of a Jewish river, in a sense. I mean, this reincarnation has yeah. to be Jewish reincarnation. Because if you were to say that, you know, this uh, new thing is a new entity, it is not part of anything in the past. We are leaving that as a previous birth. So this new birth is genuinely a new river. If you were to say that, a lot of the clientele will walk away. Because they'll say, oops, no, 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 you are now, you're, you're smuggling us back into this paganism. Whatever they say. That could be. I don't know. Because you have this monotheistic river and this pagan vibrant, exciting, exotic stream coming in and what comes out, if you truly, if you are true to the Hindu teachings, mm -hmm. uh, then then what comes out would be considered by these orthodox, by the Jewish clientele, would be considered very pagan, dangerous. And I think they yeah. were told not to go there. We don't yeah. want to go there. Oh, yeah. And and our friend uh, uh, Rabbi Siegel is, uh, Stephen Siegel is taking us there. They would be worried, right? Yeah. They would be worried. Yeah. So so you have to then make the choice as the, as the supplier, as the producer that am I going to go really with my Swami Rama experience and say, oh, hey, this is what it is. Now you guys get out of there. You guys have to get past this identity, tribal identity. Or are you going to say, listen, this is my market. I did all this. I benefit a lot. I'm good for me. Four o'clock in the morning, I meet my Swami Rama. But from nine o'clock to six o'clock when I'm out there doing my satsang, uh, I, I'm going to supply what the market needs. So this is your choice. It's a very interesting idea, yeah. See, my, I never looked at it that way. I looked at the streams as being technology, technique streams rather than something deeper. So it's a, it's a very, so interesting, very interesting point. Yeah. yeah. So the, second, the next the final provocation I want to leave you with is your remark about the trappings of the guru, mm -hmm. the body. Now this, I think, a very Western, uh, the limits to Hinduism, the limits to how tolerant and respectful I can be of Hinduism, most Westerners would say, I wouldn't go to the extent of really uh, considering this living enlightened master 
to be an incarnation or a rep or somebody where if I'm really attached, mm -hmm. uh, including the touching the feet and doing all the things that one would do to a deity, that part I wouldn't go. Most Westerners who have been mm -hmm. for all their lives into Hinduism would not go that far. Mm -hmm. Except maybe Iskon, where the bhakti mm -hmm. was, sure. took them there. So now <clears throat> I want to leave you with a quantum physics idea, very fashionable in the West, this the new, new thought. Mm -hmm. You know, the new thought movement started and there's another wave of Hindu-Buddhist influences and the new, new thought. Now it's the new, new, new thought. <laughs> Quantum physics says that tiny photons get entangled or electrons get entangled. And so even when they're separated for galaxies apart, if something happens to one, yeah. effect happens. Then some people like Amit Goswami, who worked in my foundation in the, in the early 90s, for three years we gave him this grant. He wrote a book called The Self-Aware Universe, which influenced a lot of the new, new, new thought mm -hmm. uh, where consciousness right. has this quantum effect. And the Maharishi's people, John Hagelin, who runs the Maharishi University, he's an eminent physicist from Harvard, but a lifelong, very devoted, very loyal, sincere Maharishi follower. Mm -hmm. he's a, in his physics, he writes about this entanglement, mm -hmm. uh, the quantum entanglement of consciousness. So now there's evidence neuroscientists have found that if two people are related, maybe they're uh, twins who are separated or they meditated, two strangers like you and me, we just come meet, meet each other and we do a series of meditations and then we're separated. They take uh, your your brain and they, they uh, give a stimulus to your eyes, some light mm -hmm. and it triggers some neurons. So the me they measure neuro neurons are activated because of stimulus in the eye. I'm sitting in another room far away and they're measuring those neurons but no light has been put in me and the same neurons activate me. Mm -hmm. So these are called mirror neurons. Yeah. Mirror neurons. And this mirror neuron is a very fascinating concept because it, sh it shows there's some kind of entanglement mm -hmm. and this entanglement between us happens when we are meditating for instance. Mm -hmm. They've also found that 95 plus percent of the brain is not being used by mm -hmm. most of us. And, and when you get going to higher states of consciousness, more and more of that dark brain becomes in the top. So they, this proves that there were people like Rishis at one time because they used it, otherwise the brain wouldn't exist. So when you start putting all this evidence together, it seems there is a physics to the following claim that a certain being who's enlightened, who is quantum entangled with the Supreme, this enlightened being is uh, the avatar is a quantum entanglement with the supreme mm -hmm. becomes a user-friendly access for ordinary people so while you may say let's get entangled with yahweh or worship yahweh and the kabbalah might say that mm -hmm. the point is kabbalah is, uh, yahweh is not too available he's sort of right. too far out mm -hmm. and this guru who is genuine an honest one mm -hmm. not a sort of a you know fraud one but a real honest one who has achieved this enlightenment is a local representation of this in infinite outside. Mm -hmm. The manifestation is a manifestation of the infinite that's beyond. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying that don't worship images, you must worship images because this, this particular kind of image is in fact a replica and a, and a quantum entanglement of something which is beyond. So it's more user friendly for you to get entangled with this guy. Mm -hmm. It is more user friendly for you to get entangled with this living guru 
because he's friendly, he talks back, he sits down and tells you jokes and you eat meals together, you go mm -hmm. sing dance. So he's more like me. So it's easier for me to uh, be friend, be close to him. Whereas the God above who's un, uh, unmanifest is too abstract an idea. I might do it four o'clock in the morning. I might, okay, I'm okay for <laughs> half an hour. But then, you know, rest of the day, I'm not going to be uh, so much committed. Mm -hmm. So this is my response from the, the physics of bhakti. Mm -hmm. This is the physics of bhakti, the quantum mm -hmm. physics of bhakti. Uh, and I'm writing on this. Mm -hmm. I'm writing the quantum entanglement as sort of the metaphysics of bhakti, Hindu bhakti. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you may want to think about it. Maybe we can be in touch and talk about it mm -hmm. later. Because I feel that this puts a whole new legitimacy and a whole new value to this idea of bhakti for the guru. The guru seva and the guru bhakti. Mm -hmm. Because this guru is an entanglement with the divine on one side mm -hmm. and I can entangle with him and then get entangled to the divine as a stepping stone for me. So what do, what do you think of that? So, tell me. So, it's very interesting. Um, I agree that being near, having satsang, all of that, but at the same time, on a different level, um, he's a man, he's a person. He may be enlightened, so I don't worship people. However, I can respect him, I can honor him, I can listen to his advice and his, you know, what he says to do. And then, on yet another level, we're all there. We're just, we've just got all the, the veils in front of us blocking it. It's like, I don't need to worship someone, I need to get myself there. That's, that's the purpose. And he's someone that can help me get there. So, uh, he is just a regular person, but he has achieved a certain state of quantum entanglement. Yeah. So it's sort of like you and I meditated together, mm -hmm. and when they tested your eyes with the light, yeah. it lit up. But with some other random guy, it won't happen because you're not so entangled. And, and, and so he's a guru, because he's an enlightened guru because he's achieved for 40 years, 50 years and prior, prior lives, he's achieved this entanglement with the divine, yeah, well, and which regular people have. So he has something special that others don't. So his, it, it could also be as simple as, you know, you hang around with a tennis uh, coach because he's a great coach, but I'm not a tennis coach, you hang around <laughs> me, it's not going to help you. So you cannot use the argument that he's just another person because I'm, yeah. I'm another, yeah, the tennis coach is someone special. Yeah. Yeah. So he is someone special, that much you yes. would admit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that way, yes. even a rabbi is someone special, yeah. but now we're talking about going, how special is special? How special <laughs> can special get? Yes. And, and the case I'm making from quantum entanglement is that it's not just dry knowledge, it's not just I'll teach you factually, which I could teach in a video. No, and, it's experience. It, 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 it is experience and there is a certain Shakti entanglement. Mm -hmm. Shakti path is an entanglement phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. the physics of entanglement sure. which says, okay, I touch your head and you, you've got, I've transmitted a billion terabytes just of Shakti uh, software into you. That's what the guy is saying, the yeah. one who does Shakti part. So it doesn't mean that Shakti part also for you doesn't really is not really working. It's just he's just a symbolic thing and a kind of a hypnosis. Because if Shakti part works, then you are accepting that there is such a thing as a oh, state yeah. of consciousness which is being transmitted through this high-speed pen drive into you. Right. You're downloading this guy's Shakti part. Yes. So what do you think of that? I absolutely agree. But I come back to what all of the teachers teach, which is that there is only the one. Yes. So you and I are the same place that Swami Rama was. 
we just have it so covered over and hidden with this stuff that it's not obvious. So our job is to uncover that. And, and Swami Rama is an inspiration and, a, and an energy source and whatever you want to call it so, to so make that happen. So what we are saying is, uh, what we are saying is, energy source and inspiration can be extended to entanglement and say, sure. okay, then if, you're, if there is entanglement possibility, mm -hmm. because he has uncovered it, he is where we want to go, mm -hmm. then is the proximity and certain rituals and procedures of Guru Seva uh, protocols for energy for entanglement to work for me. Okay. I just I never never learned or had a, a relationship of that nature with the guru. At least you're open. Else. But I'm open to the possibility. What you're yes. saying it is possible, but in sure. your 50 years you haven't you haven't seen it that way. You've seen no. the the guru as a teacher, like somebody you know. This well, and, and no, I mean there definitely is an energy exchange. There's no question about that. And the entanglement from a physics point of view makes sense. Um, but I, I don't see that specific rituals in any tradition are necessarily what make that possible. Okay. I think. So I'm going to introduce you. An early question I asked when we were first learning some of the tantric techniques and the, you know, the, how to hold your hand and, and how to present the, the fire offering and what, what mantras to say. My first question was, why do we do all this stuff? Why don't we just sit in the lap of the mother and just be there? That's what we need to do. And the teacher agreed. He said, that's all we need to do. But who can do it other than Swami Rama? You know, Swami Rama says, don't mention the mother to me because I go there. You know, and then it's going to take me a couple of minutes to come back and talk to you again. Um, but the rest of us you know, don't have that tight a connection. Um, but so there's a whole... You, you're very. You're one of the Westerners most widely read in Hindu texts. I, mean, I can see that you've read a lot and studied a lot. So, uh, so I want to recommend that there's a whole, the largest collection of texts is the least known. It's called Agamas. Agamas are protocols, procedures, technologies, do's and don'ts. Uh, why you don't put on your shoes and why you use your right hand and put this flower and why you put the ghee and why you pour this milk and this water. The text for Agamas, uh, architecture of temples and design, building, operation, every ritual, every uh, the, the how, why of rituals is explained in Agamas. And there's and I'm I'm discovering more and more about the importance of agamas, and just something for you to think about. Maybe that that will be the next frontier of discovering through the agamas the sense of Jewish rituals. Because a lot of people tell me when I go to my Jewish friends for some event, they'll say, "Well, we do this because our ancestors did it." Don't mm -hmm. ask me why. Right? Yeah. You know why the star of David at six it starts? I told them it's because three triangles down there, one triangle going up. This is the male female. They'll say, "Oh, wow, wow, no, no, have I told you that?" Mm -hmm. And but they have so many symbols, so many rituals going on. Mm -hmm. They have no clue what it is, and yeah. their rabbis cannot tell them other than we are tribal. We just follow the tribe. So I think the detribalization, yes, the detribalization requires a more intelligence, physics-oriented, scientific-oriented reinterpretation of what it means to be a Jew, and understanding the Hindu agamas might lead them there. Very interesting. Do you think that's a possibility? It's a very interesting idea. So now I've given you for another <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. 
right next I'm, lifetime. I mean, this is this is if you, to study the Hindu arguments mm -hmm. and to study this whole business of why the tribalism is there, why mm -hmm. what is it, what, what are the limits of knowledge exchange between Hindus and, and Jews within the parameters of the tribalism versus how could the tribalism be burst open, and then we could really honestly mm -hmm. uh, be having this exchange without the identity that is my identity, this right. border. Yeah, you know? because a lot of Hindus would feel a little bit cheated. They would say. I am being told, let's be same, okay? Except we're not. Except we're not. <laughs> yeah. The Jews know that we're not, but we are being deceived by our own gurus to think that we are all the same. So a lot of Hindus, I'm waking up to say, hey, challenge your, your Hindu guru when he says we're all the same. Because same, if X is same as Y, then Y is same as X. Yeah. yeah. But the Y is saying, hey, listen, I'm this tribal Y <laughs> and you, the X, I'm going to take in what I need. Yeah. The X is making a fool of himself thinking that, listen, this guy's actually dropped his, his identity, you know, mask, yeah. which he hasn't. So we the Hindus, a lot of the Hindus here are 90% of them are confused about this. Most of them are confused about it because they do, they really think that everybody else is into this. Uh, we're all same. So we should also be fashionable. We'll also be same. Mm -hmm. And so we start start giving up our Hindu identity, our Vedic Sanatana Dharma identity. It's maybe some of the gurus also. And I have to ask Panditji where he stands on this because he talks a little bit that way also. Mm -hmm. So um, an interesting idea because I'm noticing the younger generation of Jews are much less of this tribal and they're more more like the Hindu. Yeah. So, so, I, it, so I think it may be happening on its, on its own without somebody breaking it open. It just takes a couple of generations to happen. We need to engage such people. Yeah. And maybe after this interview, which I want to thank you for, I think we should continue. We should discuss some of these things and maybe we can have some focus groups and forums and debates and have different points of view yeah. from the most orthodox to the most liberal and everybody in between. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. But right now. So I think uh, one of the, it's interesting you made some interest, uh, points about what are the differences between Judaism and Hinduism, which the Jewish people, even though they like Hinduism a lot and like many things about it, won't be able to accept certain aspects. So um, uh, we talked about a few. So one more is uh, that I want to ask your view is why are gurus considered suspect? Or uh, the claim of being really divine presence is not considered acceptable. And this is true of all the Abrahamic religions, but I'll ask from the Jewish point of view because you guys came first. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that probably is a strain that's gone all through the history, but became much more enforced after the destruction of the temple. Because prior to that, there were priests who did sacrifices. There was a, it was a religion very much like, you know, a lot, a lot of aspects like Hinduism. Um, there was an intermediary, there were a priestly class, there were uh, Levites, which were the next level down from the priests that, that did certain things. But after the temple was destroyed, there was a, a clear effort by leaders, by sages, to create some form of the religion that no longer depended on that. And that was very deeply ingrained into, into modern Judaism, that, that there is no intermediary, that, that, that that's what it used to be, but that's not the way it is now. Now, prayers have replaced the sacrifices, and, and um, the home activity has replaced a lot of the temple activity. Um, so were there prophets after that, or no more prophets? No, prophets were before that. So, so, so it ended prophets? Yeah. And replaced it with a book, saying this book mm -hmm. gives you... This Shastra gives you yeah. uh, the, the knowledge mm -hmm. and, and there are no intermediaries. 
There are several issues here with Hinduism I want to talk about. One is the distinction between uh, prophets in the Abrahamic religions and what would be considered avatars and, and enlightened rishis. There's a difference there. So there, even yeah. the intermediaries are of different kinds. Right. So in the case of the prophets, the prophets never said, "I'm enlightened and I'm Satchitanand and this is this is this is my my the I'm uh, I'm the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I I have." Uh, uh, achieve the state of enlightenment of oneness where I am telling the truth. The prophet always positions himself as God has said this to me. There's a duality between God and me, and I'm saying it to you. Yes, in fact, there's there's this a concept or an idea with regard to the prophets that they completely destroy their ego. They they are just a, a conduit. Right. That they they have no input whatsoever. <clears throat> um, that they're they're just a way for God to contact the people. So the well, dissolving the ego is also a considered well, one of thing yeah. in Hinduism, but here it has a different meaning yes. in the sense that I've dissolved the ego in the sense that I'm not going to filter and uh, contaminate the message and I'm not mm-hmm. originating the message. But it, is, it does not mean that this is now my, this is a, a message from myself. This is a message from God. Right. And God is other from the prophet. From that point of view. From yes. that point of view, God is other. God, yes. God A has passed the message to B to be transmitted to C. Yes. That's really how yeah, it works. That's, that's the Whereas rishi. in the in the Rishi state, the Rishi says that A, B are one. I have achieved oneness with A, mm-hmm. such that I'm no longer B, as you can see me in the body is B, but I'm so much connected with A that I'm actually one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm speaking through my voice in this body, but actually it's A's voice. So there's a different connection yeah, between A and right. B. So that's one difference. So then, then there is the avatar where it is not a rishi who is enlightened into being the one, but the one incarnates in a body. Mm-hmm. And that never happens in Judaism. There's no, there's no Jewish incarnation in man. Correct. Yeah. This is very important for people to understand yeah. because they keep going on saying, oh, it's all the same, but because, it's not the yeah, same. Because that's, that's the main difference between Judaism and Christianity. That is that there, that, that there is that. Jesus. That, that, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is the one, this is the one and only uh, claim of us, anyone similar to an avatar. Yes, and and the claim is very clear that uh, this is the only one. There's never been one before or after being the only son of God and things right. like that. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, so therefore the one difference between the prophet and the guru uh, mm-hmm. is is that the prophet uh, the state of enlightenment is not something claimed by the prophet. The mm-hmm. prophet is just saying I'm a messenger. I'm the yeah. uh, PR man. Uh, I mean, sort of like yeah. or, or I'm the HR guy, HR department. I tell you what the policies are. I mean, the boss made the policies, right. I'm just conveying them to you. That's sort of what yeah. the prophet says. Sure. So, uh, then the second thing is, the second uh, issue you raised is, the intermediaries of all sorts were done away with uh, mm-hmm. in a historic moment called the destruction of the temple. Right. When, about which year or which century did that happen? How far back is that, the destruction of the temple? Um, I'm trying to think it's Roman times, so it's sometime... A few hundred years B.C., probably. No, the, uh, few, uh, within a hundred years. Uh, after, after Jesus. After. So Jesus had arrived. Because Jesus went to the temple. So it was still you, there when he course, was around. Of course. So, so could it was shortly after that. So could this be some relationship with Christianity? Could it be a reaction to that? Or you think it's independent? I think it's independent, but again, I'm not a historian. Right. Um, there may have been some reaction that... Um, you know, this, this this guy stepped over the bounds too far, and 
um, got and look what he did. He got the Romans so mad at us that they destroyed the temple. So I mean, we should get that's a possibility. We should get into all right. of these quacks. Right. It's not. It's not the story I've heard, but that's a possibility. But well, the, the rabbis considered him to be a quack. I mean, they considered Jesus to be a fraud. I don't know that that's necessarily. But true. did they accept him as a messiah? No. Then, then he, was he was a quack. I mean, his major claim that he's son of God was rejected. Um, his claim that he's the incarnation. Yeah, his claim that he's, that he's a, yeah, an avatar, an incarnation, is rejected. He did that. So, for, for, for because yeah. that is his signature claim, mm -hmm. for the Jews at the time, the authority at the time, he's a quack because he's making this claim. If sure. they were to, if yeah, they they were to accept that, okay, then they would yes. become Christian. Of course, yes. Yeah, so for the authorities at the time, I think for the common people living in the area who had heard him, some of them followed him in, and that, they in, that, in that direction. Some of them just said he was a really good teacher, but. He went a little too far there. <laughs> so, so setting that aside, because you feel that the the uh, the uh, abandonment of priests was an independent thing in Judaism. Yeah. So, the abandonment of priests uh, in, in Hinduism, we've never had abandonment of gurus. Right. We've never said, never said right. that the book is all there is. Abandon all the gurus and basically abandon all the deities because they're intermediaries. Uh, basically, it's you and the book, and that's all you need. We've never had that kind of a movement, right? Or at least not a mainstream one. Mm -hmm. And so this this is a big difference between Judaism and Hinduism because when a Jew sees a guru, then all those ideas come up sure. of what has been rejected. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that this also has another implication that in in Hinduism, you you can the, the authority is decentralized precisely because uh, there are so many gurus. Mm -hmm. And and uh, when you when you do away with the intermediaries mm -hmm. of whatever kind, right. then you consolidate authority and power, because it allows you to say uh, no one else can uh, do or anything. It's just written in this book, and we are the authority of the book. Right. And see, it removes authority from people <clears throat> right. and places it in in, in a tradition. Right. Um, now the other thing to understand about the the book, though, is you know there is the Old Testament, the Torah. Which is the authority. Right. Then there is this commentary or, or discussion about that, which is much larger, called the Talmud, which in Orthodoxy is the authority. That's where that's where they go. It's the discussion of the rabbis. It's not necessarily what God said. It's all the discussions over the years of what the the sages and, and rabbis said um, that then becomes the rules. Yeah. I mean the perfect example. In the Torah, it says, Thou shalt not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. That was a common type of, of, of dish that was served in the Middle East in those days. They would, they would cook a, a, a young, you know, young cow in, in, in milk. So that was prohibited. Through hundreds of pages of discussion, you now have to have a separate set of dishes and milk is eaten this way and, and, and some, some people have separate sinks that they don't wash in the same place. That's all <coughs> you know, the rabbis is not in the book, um, so and it's a living thing. Also, that there's a book that's the authority, but there's what's called responsa. Over the years, rabbis have written commentaries in response to something that's in there and said, "I'm interpreting it this way," right. and it's different from how it was interpreted before. So it's still a living, growing thing, but <coughs> there's no intermediary. There's no one person that's the authority. No central. So do you feel that uh, uh, the experiential dimension, which is very, which is what Hinduism is known for, mm -hmm. what draws you to Hinduism, is the experiential dimension. 
I mean, you, you, it's not a book that you are, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned your experiences with Swami Ram, meditation. Right. So it's the, it's the desire to achieve a certain experience in yourself. That is what draws Jews to Hinduism, I would assume. I would think so. Yeah. And a lot of them say that. Mm -hmm. And it seems that that being closed and, and, and the knowledge being placed in the book, mm -hmm. and the book is closed, uh, turned the whole thing from experiential to intellectual. Yes. Okay. So, so the this business of doing away with intermediaries also does away with experience, because these intermediaries bring their experience. experience that's yeah. Right. Absolutely. And and so, but turning it over to the book means you now turn it over to a bunch of intellectual scholars, so who can nitpick over what the book said and didn't say. Yeah. And as time goes by, uh, it lends itself to state authority control over interpretation because now it's a book. And human beings are going to interpret it and who appoints those human beings uh, so that becomes a kind of a control mechanism i guess that's a possibility i don't see that as having happened because in judaism in judaism right but, but, judaism, the, but, the, but the the situation Juda, is judaism a, starts the abrahamic traditions mm -hmm. and look at it like in islam it's not that's only true. a book yes. experiences are not the, you cannot overrule right. okay uh, so there's no more prophets and now Saudi Arabia controls who, who gets to interpret. So something like that. Sure. And so, then they, so the possibility And the Shias claim yes. the rival rival that we have the authority too. Right. Or we have the better authority. Yeah. So the whole history of the Abrahamic religions, you could say a major milestone is the doing away with the intermediaries. Mm -hmm. Because look what it leads to. It yeah. leads to the book. The book is uh, sacrosanct. And then who controls the book? Who interprets the book? That lends itself to state control. So, yeah. So it could be said that. Could be, sure. Okay, now the other thing I want to talk about is idolatry. Mm -hmm. A lot of Jews like everything about Hinduism except they don't want to look at this deity. They don't want to go along with this deity. And that's part of the problem of the Guru because he and the deity seem sort of, he's claiming that he's also the living deity. Yeah. That's even worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even if you put the Guru aside, uh, this claim in the commandment of idolatry is very, very strong. Right. So tell me about that as a showstopper for Jews in, in, in their movement into Hinduism. Well, I, I think that the, you, you've said it basically, there's a, there's a prohibition against idolatry and from a lack of understanding, I think, of some of the deeper tenets of Hinduism, it's looked at as idolatry. <coughs> um, you know, but but uh, it, you know, some, some modern thinking Jews We'll look at, uh, at our book, at the Torah, and say, well, no, there's, there's five, six, seven different names for God. Right. And they're used for different, indicating different purposes, different right. actions. In some ways, that's similar to the, the pantheon of, of uh, Hinduist gods, that there's the creator, the destroyer, the this and that. And here... That's uh, polytheism. But I'm saying, let's separate the two. Okay, okay so the idols. Simply, the, the symbols. Even if there's just one God, right. why do you have this stone? Why do you have this painting? Mm, yes, that's a that's a, that's, a, that's definitely a barrier. And I, I felt that myself. It's like, I you know I, I can appreciate the the difference in energy that all of the concepts of polytheism. I can appreciate what's underlying that, but it's difficult to look at a statue and and, and you know want to pour milk on it or so, do something with it. So, the idea that the supreme being is only transcendent is very important in Judaism and Christianity, whereas in Hinduism, 
the immanence of the being mm -hmm. means the being is in this state of life. His being is in this. And again, there's different strains in Judaism because the idea is that, yes, there's the, the transcendent, the I-thou relationship, but there is also the sense of the imminent, but that's just seen as within. Like the, some, some people talk about the spark of God that's in your heart. But you wouldn't see... Well, you wouldn't you see, wouldn't see the divine, that same presence as this river no, or no, this tree. Right. Or therefore, you cannot see it as this storm. Right. That's the issue. Yes, that's the issue. So, so the, the idea that all Srishti, all creation, all existence is nothing but divine, mm -hmm. but divine, uh, Brahman's presence or Shiva's presence mm -hmm. is not acceptable in, 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 because it's idol worship. I, I have to disagree with that. I think a lot of Jews would think that way, but the deeper teachings of Judaism, I mean, one of the main prayers that's said toward the end of every service has a, ver has a, has a line in it that says, um, in the heavens above and the earth below, uh, there is only God, there is nothing else. Okay, so why don't you use that to argue against the Jews who don't want idolatry? Why hasn't there been a because, Talmud because, because the that statue or that stone is no more God or no less God than I am or this chair is. Okay. So I don't worship the chair or you or, no, or the stone. No, but the, the, the logical argument would be that, look, I, I, I have no problem worshipping this stone, but I also worship the chair, by the way. And I also worship my shirt. Because to me, all of this is God. And you worship the stone, have no problem. I join you in that. But then I'm also going to go back to my room and worship the light bulb. I, in other words, yeah. In other words, if you truly believe mm -hmm. that divinity is what exists, everything that exists is divine presence. And if you are saying that there is this one line which is recited all the time in Jewish liturgy, then why isn't there a Talmud debate between rabbis where one group of rabbis would, would invoke this and say, hey, why are you guys against idolatry? Idolatry is part of our, we are idolizing in, every, in that line. In that line, we are, we are supporting idolatry in every single uh, you know, ritual. The Hebrew language leads, leaves room for a number of interpretations. Similar to Sanskrit, everything comes from a, an active root, a verb root. And, and any word then expand us. So, so other people will read that same line. There's no, there, there is, rather than saying there's nothing else, there is no other. That there's only the one. So you can interpret it a number of different ways. So you're saying that a Jewish counter-argument exists to those Jews who reject Hinduism's idolatry. No, I'm not really saying that. Because a great teacher in the 1700s, um, Rabbi Schneer Zalman expanded on that and using Kabbalistic <clears throat> terms from, from the Zohar, actually, from the, the main Kabbalistic work, um, described God as saying, surrounds all of existence and fills all of existence. And other than that, or, or except for that existence, there is nothing else or there would be nothing else. So it's not that this is God. It's that God is more than this. And this is some, in some aspects, some way, some part of God. Um, that God also surrounds all that is. It isn't just that God is all that is. So you can't worship this because that's worshiping a part of God. 
whereas you need to worship the, the uh -huh. whole thing. So this is interesting because in our idea, mm -hmm. let's say let's say you take Shaivism, Sadashiva, mm -hmm. or the or yeah, you can you can worship Shiva, you can worship the <coughs> no, mother. Sadashiva yeah, right. manifests as mm -hmm. form. Right. So form is not is is a complete manifestation of the whole. Right. So the, the relationship between macro and micro is very interesting. It's different. It's different. Yeah. So micro is not necessarily a subset of macro. Mm -hmm. That's the human mind thinking that, you know, micro has to be a subset of macro. Mm -hmm. But micro, I mean, mac micro has to be a subset of macro. Yeah. Micro can be a full representation of macro and you can even have macro is contained within the micro. Mm -hmm. This is what like what, yeah, it's, it's, what Panditji was explaining sure, yesterday. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the Sri, Sri, which, is, which is the whole foundation of what this is about. The Sri Yantra, yeah. what it what it means. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the metaphysics of uh, what is a proper Jews think that the God God in form is a proper subset of God, and therefore you're worshiping a proper subset, mm -hmm. and you're not worshiping the totality of God. Therefore, it is bad. But he, personally, we don't agree with that. That is the right. I, say that's, I think that's the crux of the difference. And, and then, yes. even if that were the case, why would why would Moses make such a big deal of a commandment out of that and say, "Thou shalt not do this"? I mean, it really seems like some horrible thing mm -hmm. uh, that you're not allowed to do this. He no. could have said, "This is not the ultimate worship." This is an intermediate. This is a facilitator. Don't mm -hmm. stop there. But please do start there. Because you're better off than people who never get started anyway. You see what I'm saying? He could have said that. Yeah, he yes. could have said. So I think there's more to it in the in the condemnation of idolatry. Yeah. I think there's more to it. I, I think that we can maybe one day get into the, mm -hmm. the comparative theology of why worship of form is considered so horrible by all the three mm -hmm. uh, you know Abrahamic religions and so and why it is so central to us. It's a very that's, question, I, that's yeah. an important. That's a that's a very deep one that needs a lot. It's a, it's of a very deep and it needs a lot of thinking. Yeah. And so many gurus are te teaching to Western, you know, students, mm -hmm. and they are following along. And then somewhere along the way, they make a U-turn. Some, something doesn't uh, appeal to them. They reject mm -hmm. it. But they haven't gone in, in the last 50, 60 years since this movement of Westerners in Hinduism. They haven't really bothered to really investigate what is the reason, what yeah. is the blockage, mm -hmm. and let's investigate that. I think we need to do that. That's a that's a very good question. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, this also takes me to uh, <clears throat> uh, the Hindu claim mm -hmm. that the state of consciousness, which is considered enlightened, enlightened mm -hmm. state of consciousness, mm -hmm. is not only available to all people, but an enlightened master can transmit his to yours, to mm -hmm. you, to me. So. The, it's like downloading, you know, you get an exact copy of the software. Mm -hmm. You cannot say that because I got this on a small pen drive, mm -hmm. therefore it is, a, it is only, it's an incomplete subset of what Microsoft has. Mm -hmm. Because it's the whole thing. Right. If there's not one bit of code missing, it's the whole thing. So this master's ability to achieve a state of consciousness mm -hmm. and then in Shakti part transmit it in a zap to you. Mm -hmm. is, is, is there such a thing available? Not that I'm aware of. And I think it probably goes back to the same idea as the idolatry. Right. That, that the, um, it's almost looking, the difference between a, a photograph and a hologram. Right. A hologram gets the whole thing. It's all there, even though it's this little tiny thing. Whereas, you know, a photograph gets what that little photograph got. And I think that's the, the difference. That, that Hinduism is looking from the point of view of a hologram. That, that the individual, the guru, the, can be everything. So, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that some of the large part of your, uh, the people who are in your satsang, mm -hmm. in, the, in the group that you have, Jewish people. Mm -hmm. 
are, are interested in learning these things from mm -hmm. Hinduism, keeping their Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you go to that point where you provoke them to say, aha, you can have this or that, because if you have this, you are challenging this Jewish idea. Are you, are you doing that? Are you saying, well, no, no, you can have both. And I'm the magician. I'll, uh, I, I'm Merlin. I'll wave this magic wand and you will have, you'll remain Jew, but you'll have all of this stuff also. Do you do that? Or do you say, make a choice? I don't go quite that far. Okay. Either, either of those. Um, I say, these are some really useful techniques that are available from the Eastern way of doing things that you can apply however you want, whether you want to apply them as an Eastern practice or apply them as a, quote, technology that you use in your Jewish practice is up to you. I don't, I don't take any position of authority. I just say, here's something I learned that's really interesting and useful. You might find it interesting and useful also. A large number of Jewish people who gotten into ISKCON mm -hmm. uh, and, and Maharishi's meditation movement and many, sure. many movements later end up taking a U-turn back to Judaism mm -hmm. and uh, withdraw from, distance themselves from, even outright reject Hinduism, outright mm -hmm. uh, explicitly hit at it and say, this is bad. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, are you facilitating that in the sense, in the sense, or, or it's not your, your fault, sorry. <laughs> is the guru, is the Hindu guru facilitating that by inviting all these people in without explaining to them up front what it entails in terms of their own identity. Would a Hindu guru be better off, more honest and more fair to his class, to students and to his own lineage by saying, we are going to give you a teaching which will actually violate the idolatry clause and this whole polytheism clause and this whole business about no intermediaries clause. I'm here to tell you that that is my tradition. Now you can take it, you can not take it. You can take these classes on an experimental basis and then decide, but I want you to reflect on it. I want you to think about it. I don't want you to have it in your unconscious lurking around and have a split personality and be duplicitous in private saying one thing in public saying another thing before one group of people this and one group of people that. Mm -hmm. I want you to be very bold, courageous, honest, audacious, and think about all these things. And let's think about it together. And we learn from each other. I don't know too many gurus who do that. I don't, no, I don't either. And I think that's a very interesting idea. The problem being that a lot of people who would not make the U-turn, at that point, would not be willing to, to step in and try. But it, it'll so, raise the threshold. It'll raise the threshold raise the, of, yeah, raise the threshold of, of honesty, courage, and oh, yeah. uh, experimentation. Mm -hmm. That you know, this is a, you're entering a territory where uh, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. You may have experiences where you would not want to go back. Mm -hmm. uh, you may just want to go forward. Uh, so I, I'm going to take you there, yeah. and I'm going to take you to those experiences, and I'm going to show you. You will feel that in yourself, mm -hmm. and then you may you will have a lot of information, personal, first-hand information on which to think. And think differently. I think that would be it's a very a, it's courageous. A very, it's a very, yeah, courageous is a good word for it. It's a very interesting idea because, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to Swami Rama was the you know this institute of, of science and philosophy, um, and there were no uh, there were no altars here in those days. There were no um, Hindu practices per se. It was you know, the science of yoga. Um, and the science of meditation, uh, the scientific research on breath and how that affects the body and the mind. 
Um, and I don't know offhand if the other had been happening, I would have been as attracted to start with. Even though once I learned a little bit and, and you know had had some background, it doesn't bother me. But initially, it may have. I don't know. You see, if you uh, look at the Indian tradition, mm -hmm. there is a tradition called Purva Paksha, which means you study the other's point of view. Mm -hmm. So a guru is required to have studied the Jewish tradition, mm -hmm. uh, especially when he takes on Jewish students. Mm -hmm. sure. He's required to study the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. He's required to have done the Purva Paksha and they haven't done it. Uh, the gurus have not studied the other traditions like they're required to. In the past, the Hindu gurus would study the Buddhist, and they would study the Jain, they would study the, the Vedantin, would study the Sankhya, they would study each other's traditions in order to discuss with them, engage with them, and explain. Because only after doing Purva Paksha, which means I understand your tradition as sincerely and as honestly as you understand it, then there is the Uttar Paksha, which means I give my perspective in response, saying, here is how I think about it. So first, I understand your ideology position, sure. which is your ideology. I must understand it. Mm -hmm. I must understand the history, why, what not. And then I'll tell you my Uttar Pakshi has my response to it. Sure. Only then can we have a conversation because mm -hmm. now I understand you and you should do the same about me. Mm -hmm. So this honesty and integrity of the Purva Paksha system yeah. has been lost by the modern gurus. I have a problem against them. Mm -hmm. I, 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 one of the books I'm writing now is basically to show that this a uh, shortcut mm -hmm. or this marketing convenience because maybe right, that's what it is marketing convenience because you as you said we maybe scare some western students away mm -hmm. and the guru says okay as a matter of convenience i'd rather have as many students because good business than to hold the integrity of my tradition of purva paksha well to make it a little bit better light than marketing because these these people are, are craving what i have to offer and I don't want to turn them off before they have an opportunity to see it. Okay. So, okay. so but the same same thing. That, that that would mean I should have an introductory level at which I don't scare them away, mm -hmm. at which I invite all of them and give them some experience. Right. But then it should be the then should be the then there should the, be levels. The clear, at some level, clear, I have to say down. Yeah. Because our tradition says you don't do shakti path mm -hmm. to everybody. Right. And our gurus are doing it. Mm, okay. Yes. Uh, don't do shakti part to everybody. People have there are prerequisites. Like in Harvard, you don't take sure. a postgraduate course. Mm -hmm. uh, you know you have to satisfy some prerequisites or, or any school. Sure. And not everybody gets into the university. You know, some a lot of people apply and they get rejected. Mm -hmm. That was the case with gurus. Prominent gurus would take right. certain people on a selective basis, and these people would have to go through rigor mm -hmm. and prove themselves before they would be initiated to the next level in the next level. Mm -hmm. So at some stage, before giving Shakti path and giving them all the stuff, the Guru is required to have done this Purva Paksha mm -hmm. and made sure that the student knows what he's getting into and what are the issues with his prior identity. Yeah. Because as you said earlier in this conversation, Jews have a tribal identity. And around that tribal identity, which is by race, by birth, ethnicity, around that is built the religion and all those things, mm -hmm. this, which is why there are secular Jews. Yeah. They're atheist Jews. They look at the their tribal identity part of their Judaism. Mm -hmm. So a guru who's spent decades in the West and has hundreds or thousands of Western followers, and that is a large part of his overall guru practice, should have by now done this Purva Paksha yeah. to understand the client base and to counsel them, advise them and say, okay, this is what these are the these are the encounters you're gonna have. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna be there with you. And I'm gonna be an honest coach and I will help you. 
and if you decide that okay you know this is too much fine but at least you will have all the knowledge going in yeah. i think this is not been yeah, done. that's a great idea yes it's not been done mm-hmm. right, so so i i feel that rather than blaming westerners who are u turning which is my project of the u turn theory has been there for 25 years i'm researching westerners why the u turn why they don't i think the it's a it's a kind of an incompatible it's a kind of a flawed transaction between supplier and consumer mm. where they really haven't had the right kind of conversations yeah and every time i go to an ashram and listen to another guru talking i say he ought to be saying this now he ought to be saying such such thing mm-hmm. because it's almost like he's stopping he's not saying certain things for whatever reason yeah. it's like don't ask don't tell is right same idea censoring himself It's right. self-censorship. I won't tell you certain things. Don't ask me certain things. We won't go to a certain place. And the Western con- uh, consumers are lapping up what they are told. They're also very happy about it. Mm-hmm. He is not telling them certain things. They don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And so this discomfort is never brought to the surface. I consider that to be lack of honesty. Mm-hmm. I, I really yeah. do. So, and, and it's not the fault of either one or the other. The two of them have to really. Yeah, the communication links lines just weren't there. Do you agree with this? It's, yes, it makes perfect sense. You, but you think it, it could also save a lot of lives who feel very angry and bitter later on. They say, "I wasted ten years, twenty years. No one told me." Mm. And then they go and say, "Looking for Christian yoga because the yoga can only be Christian, and only if this is Christ center, it can be yoga." Mm. And the uh, sun and the Surya Namaskar has to be translated sun salutation, sun mm. as in S O N, son of God. You know, uh, <laughs> I had never done that. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> all that kind of weird stuff that's going on now mm-hmm. can be traced back to this lack of food function by the gurus it makes sense yeah because the supplier knows more about his product mm-hmm. and if i supply you a product it creates all this confusion and i know about it mm-hmm. i i should be disclosing more the label should say sure. this shall mm-hmm. challenge your views on idolatry right this shall challenge the following commandment the following commandment it should say that and then i think everybody is welcome and when we say truth is one universal of course truth is one universal and so on everybody can benefit from yoga no doubt but there are certain metaphysical premises on which yoga is built mm-hmm. and we cannot clip those away just because some people won't like them <laughs> what do you think of that it's hard to react to because i feel very comfortable um quote clipping some of that away okay um i i feel very comfortable with the you know all of the philosophy and technology of yoga and meditation um you know the yoga sutras where i read you know the name of one of the gods or something and i don't read it that way i read it as you know this this way of looking at So you 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 I do my own self uh, translating. Yeah. So you have a you have a Jewish context in mm-hmm. which you're looking at the Hindu thing. Yeah. And you read uh, read it the way a Jew would read it. Yeah. And, and it doesn't are, it doesn't bother me. No. But I don't think of it as um, I mean yeah, I when I was in India, I went to the uh Chandrabandi uh, Badni temple. Luckily that's a uh, Sri Yantra temple it doesn't have any little little rocks or statues or anything in the whole thing. Um but it didn't bother me at all to to do puja there to give give something there because I'm honoring in this case what it represents which is the opposite of what we learned the other night it's that's not what it represents it's what it is. Um but 
I could I could relate to it as though that's what it was. So so I can I, I guess I'm kind of fooling myself in those situations. And I'm very appreciative of your honesty because what you're saying is, what you're saying is, I bring my Jewish context mm -hmm. and I I have my tradition, learning and all that, and I do these Hindu things. But I interpret it in my own context. Yeah. And I interpret it selectively. Some things I'll block. I won't even want to bother including them. Some things I will include, but I will I'll re-characterize it in my reformulate it in my own way. Yeah. So this recontextualizing Hinduism, mm -hmm. recontextualizing Hinduism into Judeo Christianity is what I call stage three. Stage one mm -hmm. is immersion and understanding the Hindu stuff as it is on its own face value. Mm -hmm. That is called the Western Pur Paksha of Hindu. He's doing right. his understanding. Then stage two is decontextualizing and putting it into neutral territory. So this is the YMCA yoga. This is the Oprah Winfrey yeah. meditation. It's neither Hindu nor Jewish. It's sort of like, you know, it's yeah. a way of life and all that stuff. Yeah. So then stage three is I've recontextualized it as Judaism mm -hmm. for myself and for my clients, for the people I teach, mm -hmm. like in your case. So you are re you are recontextualizing the puja, the mandala mm -hmm. in the Jewish context. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine with me. That's recontextualizing. What I don't like is stage four. When the person says, I now have to reject the source mm -hmm. to justify what I've done. Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to say it's bad, something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have done that. A lot of Jews have done that mm -hmm. uh, to Iskan and various things. A lot of uh, scholars have done that. Mm -hmm. uh, Ken Wilbur, a great, uh, very famous guy has done that. Not uh, he, he, and I'm writing a whole book on the Ken Wilbur, uh, the whole Ken Wilbur conspiracy. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, I studied the people in various stages of U-turns. Mm -hmm. So, what you're saying is you're at stage three in the sense mm -hmm. that you perform all the rituals, you practice, you respect uh, gurus and all that, but you filter it through a Jewish lens, it's a Jewish lens, Jewish drishti, and, and then you bring it back into Judaism and s bring what works in Judaism. Yeah, so but, but, but there are some Jews. Mm -hmm who say, I'm willing to drop that lens mm -hmm. and I'm going to go all the way. So that was my interest in finding out what determines the, the type that will say, I keep my Jewish lens mm -hmm. and I receive it with respect. I have no irreverence. I'm not going to go attack it and all mm -hmm. that because obviously for 50 years you've been into Hinduism <laughs> mm -hmm. and you respect it. I've seen you respect it. I respect it, but I respect it as a Jew looking at it from my point of view. That versus the other guy who says, I'm willing to drop all this mm -hmm. and uh, just go and, in, a in essence, become a Hindu. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about these two? I don't think it's a question of how I feel. It's um, <coughs> if that's what is their right for them in this lifetime, in this stage of their growth, then that's what's right for them. Um, Was there something you couldn't accept in Hinduism and therefore you put out the Judaism or is it the other way around? Was is there a reason you cannot get, you cannot let go of that identity uh, and therefore that becomes a limiting factor as to what will get through and what will be rejected? I think it's probably closer to the second. Okay. That we can only experience what our background and our our knowledge base DNA DNA allows us to experience you know it's like if, if I um, 
So you feel that being Jewish is hardwired into you? That that it's well, kind I of. I would say DNA. DNA is a little too strong. DNA, okay. But it's um, it's a tradition I'm used to. It's what I grew up experiencing. Your comfort zone. Yeah. Your Com friends and family. Yes. yes, friends and family, comfort zone, and in some respects, you know, going to India, doing these things, is stretching that comfort zone, um, and that's good. To yes. To stretch the comfort zone. Yes. And I think what may have happened is some of these people who you talk about making the U-turn maybe stretched too far and broke the comfort zone. They were no longer comfortable and had to run back. It's right. like a rubber band, you know, right. pops back. Well, when they break the comfort zone, it could go either way. It could go either way, they, that's they, correct. They could also have to going back. I, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with it. There yeah. could be. There's could be either way, sure. Yeah. Uh, but for everyone that uh, breaks loose of their Jewish identity and just goes for it, uh, there's 10, 20, 50 others who uh, snap back. Mm -hmm. uh, so the U-turn is a more common event, mm -hmm. but it takes many years. Mm -hmm. So you see, uh, do you feel that uh, uh, when we've already agreed, the gurus aren't aware of this process that we're talking about, this U-turn process, this mental mm -hmm. uh, duality that the person goes through. The gurus aren't familiar with it because they haven't done the pool paksha of Judaism. They're very naive. They don't even know the difference between Jew and Christian, mm -hmm. much less Christian, you know, Catholic and Protestant, this sort of thing that yeah. every Western is the same. And they don't realize that there's so many nuances, and even within Judaism, so many nuances. Mm -hmm. And they haven't taken the time to really understand all this. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that uh, if they had, and if people like you were to go teach the Guru, and say, let me really tell you about Judaism. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you five things this won't be accepted, five reasons it won't be accepted. This is what Judaism says. Here's what, how it disagrees. Here's this, that. In other words, if the, Jew, if the teacher would sit back and get actually tutored, by somebody who knows the Purv Paksha of the other side. Do you think they would be better? Or do you think that they, they don't want to know? Some of them, I've, I've tried. They Some don't probably want. don't want to know. I think, again, <coughs> my, my experience is primarily Swami Rama. And I see him as someone who has done that. He's, I mean, his, his international conference had you know, Christians and Jews and, and uh, Sufis, and they were all inter, interacting and, and teaching each other as well as, as the public people who pay to come. But he represented what I would call a sanitized Hinduism. A, a Hinduism where he... Yes, for the West he does. He had already censored it out. Yeah. So you don't have to. Mm -hmm. So, so he goes to the Jews and the Christians and everybody uh, having already censored out what they won't like. Yeah, and so turn it into science and philosophy and mm -hmm. metaphysics and health and all that, which everybody would like. Mm -hmm. And so he has removed the Hindu stuff, and rather than saying, okay, now let's discuss about this idolatry business, what exactly is the problem? Yeah. Yeah. Rather than saying, I want to discuss, I want to have a world conference on idolatry. Mm -hmm. He didn't have the courage to right. say, yeah, he could have. I would, if I were as famous and as powerful and had so much clout, I would declare a world conference on idolatry. And I would bring all the guys, the pagans and the, the polytheists and the monotheists, I would bring them and say, let's discuss idolatry. Come on. <laughs> there has not been a single conference on idolatry. Uh, we talk about, we are so provocative, we are open, we can talk about all that. But there are these things that are forbidden territory. So a discussion on the very open discussion on idolatry has, is too much forbidden. Mm -hmm. So he didn't do that. Right. So I would say he's I would say he's colonized, mm -hmm. because the British colonized Indians to self uh, self censor mm -hmm. what would be unacceptable to the Victorian. This is the Victorian ethics, the Victorian aesthetics. Ah, In the 1800s, mm -hmm. Victorian aesthetics, 
dominated the uh, British study of India mm -hmm. and the Indians internalized this and started projecting a very abstract Advaita Vedanta where everything is metaphysical, mm -hmm. philosophical, oneness, mm -hmm. unity and it's so, so, straight, it's so nice so that the, 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 the so-called weirdness of Tantra was filtered out. Right. The Agamas were not translated, they were not even touched, which are huge texts. Mm -hmm. So things that would be troublesome to the colonial rulers were left out. And so this colonized Indian intellectual elite got promoted by the British to like these kind of ambassadors mm. to go around representing Hinduism, yeah. you see. And so a hundred years later comes Swami Rama, who now turns it one level further into science. So this is, this is we have to if Indians have to decolonize, we have to bring back that which is uncomfortable to the other if, if it is part yeah. of our culture. We've got to put it on the table. It, this is why I really like it when uh, I meet a Jewish person who wears his symbols mm -hmm. or a Sikh who wears a turban mm -hmm. or anybody who wears the symbols because right. he's saying he's, he's who I am. Why do I have to do it at home privately? Right. What's wrong with it? I'm, I'm willing to talk to you about it. I'm willing to right. explain to you about it. Right. So the same way the Hindus now gaining confidence mm -hmm. uh, are bringing back these symbols, are bringing back the Tantra, are bringing back the Agamas and it's a very important thing to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I appreciate your uh, facilitating this conversation because I think this will provoke and it should provoke some more discussion. Yeah, definitely. On, on these kinds. Lots of room for more discussion, absolutely. In these issues. Yeah. So you could help me to set up some more conversations <laughs> with other people like you, other Jewish people like you. I will look for them. Yes, sure. yes. Because, you know, um, uh, I saw you in the ashram. Uh, and uh, I said, this is a very sincere person. You're reading all the books and all the mm -hmm. Sandhari Lahiri reading, you know, and you've been at it for four or five decades of your life very, very sincerely. Uh, and I meet lots of people uh, and I like to talk to them. I like to understand from their point of view. Right. And I wish the gurus would do the same, try to understand things from their point of view. Yeah. But thank you so much. Thank you. Shalom and namaste. Namaste. It's very good. Thank you.